welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 18. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and my co-host tonight is... Dave Dr. Shock Becker from the uh, outskirts of Philadelphia, PA. Welcome, sir. It feels like it's been like two months since we've done this podcast. Yeah, actually, it does feel like a while. And uh, and it hasn't been. I know. It's so weird. But um, I think I think a lot of that is because of all of the extra discussion that's been going on uh, yeah. um, <laughs> across the board about Godzilla. And it, it's um, uh, not just in the comment boards, but... Uh, it's even spilled over to um, to our uh, our uh, text conversations on on phone. Yes, <laughs> um, I was I was actually sitting in uh, getting my car inspected and listening to a podcast. And they happened to mention something about Godzilla, so I email I sent a text to to uh, Jay and Josh real quick, and then of course that started it all over again. <laughs> <laughs> we just started fighting. We have been fighting for like you know at least two weeks or more about godzilla that's so funny in fact we've got the poll results here which we're going to talk about but first i just want to say um josh is making a film as everyone knows and he's always in a different time zone so uh, he likes for me to kind of just give him a reminder before we start the show so i sent the text about when we were starting to record tonight and he's like he's like oh just stepping on a plane so he is in flight right now and cannot be here tonight, so we will miss the Wolfman. Yes, definitely. But, he is a he is a very busy man. Oh my goodness, I can't believe he still. I mean, does every podcasting. every time we every every week, it seems like he's he's off to someplace, someplace. No, it's good though because he's doing something that that he really enjoys, and that's the great part of it. But I, I would think it's got to be grueling. Yeah, all yeah. the travel. Yeah, but he's doing a good job. So absolutely. So, Dave, looking at our uh, poll question here for episode 17, the first one reads, Gun to your head, where do you weigh in on the new Godzilla movie? Pick a side, right? So it was either like yes or no, basically. There was yay, liked it, and nay, didn't like it. And you and Josh, your side blew my side and one sick puppy side out of the water. The people who liked it were 81% versus... 19 percent that did mm-hmm. not like it and i was i was sitting here looking at that and i said i'm wondering if uh, jay's voting three and four times here I wonder <laughs> if he's like going going on to uh going on to things at work and look what a gracious <laughs> winner you are i, I already said i got 19 percent, <laughs> and you're like how many times did you vote in there come on dave i'm only joking with you yeah no I, and that that was uh that was um it was interesting how many how many people i thought it would be a little I mean, I figured it was going to be more who enjoyed it than didn't, but I didn't think it was going to be quite that wide a margin, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, I'm really surprised, actually. So that's hilarious. And then um, the next poll question was, which answer best represents your feelings on the Halloween Complete Collection Blu-ray set releasing this September? And so um, of the options, there are a lot here, but basically the one that, that was the most common was... I'll only purchase it if it seems worth it, like Dr. Shock said. So 49% did that, and that was far beyond everybody else's. 
I appreciate that. And you know, it's interesting. We got into the, a conversation about this on um, on the newest Land of the Creeps coming out because you know Greg Amortis is obviously Halloween is his number one movie. Yeah. Um, now he's a, and he's a collector. You know, him and him and uh, Haddonfield Hatchet are collectors. I mean, he bought. He uh, is is making arrangements to to get like the German version and uh, on DVD and so forth. So he's like collecting all of the different versions. <laughs> so for those types, it makes perfect sense to, to buy it. You yes. know? it and, but I mean, uh, and we even got into the conversation. It, 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 it's just to me, it seems like it's beyond double dipping now. I mean, we're up to like triple, <laughs> quadruple on some of these titles. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, even in, even in the Blu-ray format, I mean, this is going to be like the third for Halloween 2. That's been coming out. Yeah. Uh, and it really just seemed to me like they're saying we've got to keep these things coming out. And Greg Amortis is, is, tends to believe that this is not the last we're going to see of it, that there will be another release somewhere a few years down the road wow. uh, of Halloween. So this then that's coming right from a man who who knows, you know, this is this is his movie. This is this is the one. I mean, lives and breathes <laughs> Halloween. He does. He, he doesn't think this is the definitive collection. He loves that movie more than anybody I've ever known who loves a movie. And it, and just this past week, in fact, or within the last two weeks, it was his birthday. I noticed that on Skype. Yes. And mm -hmm. I sent him you know, a little shout out and I'm like, hey, you should treat yourself to Halloween tonight. And he's like, you know, I, th I think I'll probably do that. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, he, he does. I mean, a lot of people, that's the one movie is what we were talking about too. I mean, you know, for you and I, it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. But yet it doesn't extend to the series, to the franchise as much as it does the initial film with Halloween fans. They tend to look at the, the franchise, but for that number, for that film, I mean, look at Kenny Caperton, he built this house. Mm. To resemble the Myers house in the first that, film. That's pretty serious fandom. Absolutely. Right. I mean, and, and, and Greg Amortis uh, told a great story. I don't know if I ever told you about them. He actually met Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. And he has a tattoo on his arm of Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> and it was at an event where Jamie Lee Curtis had written a children's book. Mm -hmm. And she was not going to autograph anything or do anything with regards to films. This was all about the children's book. Well, and I think it might have been, I can't remember if it was Kenny Caperton. It might have been him, but um, had taken him to up there um, to where this was being held. And Jamie Lee Curtis and, and Greg Amorta showed the tattoo to Jamie Lee Curtis. And with all these children around and everything, Jamie Lee Curtis let out an expletive when she saw it because she was so amazed <laughs> by it. She actually took a picture of it and then sent it to her husband, um, Christopher Guest. Yes. Because uh, she was so amazed by it. And in fact, you're maybe you were getting to this, but um, like not long after that, she was on one of the Tonight shows, like Jay Leno or something, and she That's actually right. talked about it. She actually showed the picture or, or talked about it. Yeah, she got his name wrong, yeah. but she did talk about it on on that show. Yeah, which was pretty amazing. <laughs> she had just she had never seen anything like that before. She'd never seen her face as a tattoo. <laughs> so that's very cool. Yeah. So um, Halloween fans out there, um, just so you know, I mean, I know that every horror podcast and their grandma has ever done this, but I mean, we've got a big Halloween centric bash for the month of October that we think you're really going to appreciate. And um, so, you know, stay tuned. We're going to try our best to give it the horror movie podcast spin as we do with, 
you know, movies. It's our own personal approach. So we hope you enjoy it, but we're going to, we're really excited about that, huh, Doc? Absolutely. Yeah. I can, I, that's, that's a series. I, that and Friday the 13th are, are the, the two franchises that I enjoy watching mm-hmm. over and over. Not all of the films, but there are enough in both of them to, to make it worthwhile. Yeah. Even, even more so, even though I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just as a franchise, I think it falls short of those other two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in fact, um, I produce a podcast called The Traders Podcast, and I, somebody interviewed me and they saw that they asked me about my top favorite movies. And of course, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was in there. And so the guy asked me why I loved it so much. He couldn't believe that it was like so high on my list because I put it for all the movies, you know. Um, I, saw, I saw that was a great interview, by the way. Oh, thank you. That's nice. Yeah, that was excellent. <laughs> Thanks. So what happened was um, he wanted to know and he asked me and, and I'm tempted to read it here, but I don't want to bore people. But I'm like, OK, yeah, go ahead. I this would, is... Go ahead. Read it. That just you can read that that response. Uh, OK, well, it, I, I did get a little lengthy, but I mean, you and I love this film. And so I just absolutely I'm actually and, 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 and you getting lengthy. I'm sure our listeners are used to that. <laughs> that that's that's true. That was so funny. I was on um, the Resurrection of Zombie 7 podcast recently, and uh, Ron Martin, the host, said, you know, um, I don't know if this is going to be, <laughs> I mean, this will be like a blink of an eye to you, because we'll only be on here for about two hours. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, well, that's hilarious. But here's what I did. I, I, I really wanted to try to um, sell people on this movie and these are people who are presumably not horror fans. So for the horror community out there, I just wanted to show you that I was representing. And I hadn't planned on doing this, to be honest. But Doc's a Texas Chainsaw fan like I am. And so um, anyway, I'm going to just, yep. I'll read a portion of my response. It's, it's kind of long, but here it goes. So I just put, I wondered what people would think when they read uh, Texas Chainsaw as my number four number five pick because somebody asked me my top five of all movies so I put it in there and I said I wanted it to be provocative and attention getting which is why I say you asked the right question most quote-unquote normal people would probably never watch a film titled the Texas Chainsaw Massacre but like many of the exploitation flicks of the 70s uh, Texas sounds worse than it actually is in terms of content in fact There's surprisingly little gore in that film, and there's only one murder perpetrated with a chainsaw. Interesting, huh, Doc? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, right? Uh, I bet people were surprised to read that. And And it was a character, and it was the one character everybody wanted to see chainsaw. (laughs) Exactly, and I get to him too. He says, "It says Texas was made on a small budget, reportedly with the proceeds from an even more infamous film called Deep Throat." And I can't enumerate all of it here, but the legendary experiences of making this film are almost scarier than the movie itself. And despite all of this, director Toby Hooper still conjured what I consider a cinematic masterpiece. The film looks like actual footage of real events, which gives it a nightmarish quality. And scream queen Marilyn Burns, who plays Sally Hardesty, gives the most petrified performance I've ever seen on screen even above, this is controversial, Dr. Shock. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. Even above that of Shelley Duvall in The Shining, 1980. Oh. Do you agree with that or not? I, you know what? I would agree with that. Yeah, I okay. would agree with that. I mean, I think Shelley Duvall 
did a good job, and that's another one where you could look at the the horrors of behind the scenes, especially for her. <laughs> yes. You know, in that in that one documentary that I think Kubrick's daughter was shooting uh, while they were making that movie. I mean, the Shelley Duvall was, and Stanley Kubrick just did not see eye to eye on that film, and there was a lot of tension between the two of them. Yeah, that's oh, that's so awful. In fact, you remember how we've talked about before. This is just a little side note. We're such tangent goers, but right, right. But but we talked about before how perhaps Kubrick did that to try to like rattle her to and get that performance. It, that it's it's possible because he had done that before. Like he wanted George C. Scott and Doctor Strangelove to go over the top with his performance, and George C. Scott would not do it. So Stanley Kubrick said, "In the rehearsals, if you could do that, then we'll do it. You know, we'll we'll tone it down for when we're actually shooting the movie because I just want you to get a feel for it." Well, the most of the most of the shots that made it into the movie were supposedly the rehearsals that George C. Scott had no idea were being filmed. <laughs> So he would usually get what he wanted out of an actor, and, and that's very possible yeah. that he did do that. Yeah, see, and I only bring that up because um, just this week, I heard of another director doing that with an actress where he, on purpose, just treated her kind of cruelly once filming started because he wanted to kind of inform and enhance her frailty on screen. And um, I cannot, for the life of me, remember what that was, so uh, forgive me, that's... I feel bad for even bringing it up, but if it pops into my head, I'll tell it later. Yeah, well, and I know that um, I think Vincent Price had a very bad experience making Witchfinder General. Hmm. Um, you know, because he was very, he had a, a, a tendency to be camp in a lot of his performances, especially a bit later in his career. And the director, I think it was Michael Reeves, I'm, I can't remember exactly, but he actually wanted Donald Pleasance for the role. He was not happy that the studio sort of forced. Vincent Price on him because I think AIP got into the picture and helped finance the movie. Mm -hmm. So he was not treating Vincent Price very well. Vincent Price was a very miserable time for him. But part of that could have been the director trying to keep Vincent Price from going over the top and and from from going to you know from from camping it up, uh, so to speak. Yeah. As what some people think that maybe he did that. Others think he was just sort of a spoiled rich kid who who was pouting because he didn't get the actor he wanted. But either way, it's an interesting it's it's one of Vincent Price's most interesting performances. So I mean that's really going above and beyond as a director to try to like influence your actor's life outside, like you know, you know, behind the camera mm -hmm. in order to get certain results on camera. I mean, that's a serious that's almost an illness and a serious dedication it, to the craft. <laughs> it is. And, and I'm, always, I'm always fascinated to hear about those things, especially when you see how they like come out in the movie. I mean, there's a, I think it was Rob Reiner and Stand By Me was talking about the scene where the two kids are running across the train tracks. Mm -hmm. Well, clearly the train was not as close. They had done a pull focus thing to make the train look like it was right on top of them. Yeah. When in reality, it was way behind them. Um, and they were just not acting afraid, so they'd have to keep resetting up the shot with the, with the dolly and everything. And finally, Rob Reiner just lost it, and he started screaming into the megaphone, you're not doing this right, and you're, these people are tired. They're tired of doing this scene, and you're making them do it. It's all because of you that we're still here. And the kids started to cry. And as soon as he did that, he goes, roll it, action. So that when they're running across the tracks, they're reacting to him them being screamed at, <laughs> as opposed to anything. Oh, I love it. 
that 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 it happened and then they finally got across and they were all excited we did it we did it and then you know everything was okay and he talked to them and everything but that that was that was what happened in that scene and that was the scene that made it into the movie oh, or that that's that's so funny. shot made it into the movie awesome yeah, these are some really dedicated directors. But so, so just to wrap this up here, what I wrote about Texas Chainsaw. Sorry about all that big tangent, everybody. But yeah, I, I, that's what we do. <laughs> that's what we do here. I wrote that Paul Partain, who plays Franklin, the guy in the wheelchair, was a method actor who maintained his obnoxious personality during the entire filmmaking process. So the cast hated him. And by the way, the Franklin character is the keystone of this film. We find him so unpleasant and unbearable to be around that when Leatherface shows up, our perspective is shifted and we learn the true meaning of the word abhorrent. Because of this character chasm, Franklin makes Leatherface even scarier to us psychologically. That's one of my big um, drums that I beat about yeah, this movie. I, I, I think you're right. That, that's, a, that's an excellent point because Franklin... And it's real funny how they hated him so much making the movie, and then years later they all really uh, became they became very close to him. Yeah, because they realized he was actually a very nice guy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's just that you're right. He was a method actor. He stayed in character during the movie, and I I watched uh, one of the, one of the. Uh, audio commentaries before they had all gotten back together. Gunnar Hansen saying, "This is my favorite scene coming up. I couldn't wait to chainsaw this guy." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's so funny. So uh, I wrapped it up here and said, um, "I could go on and on, believe me, but uh, Texas is one of the greatest. What if? What would I do if I were in this situation? Movies. It's a truly affecting work of cinema, and it has one of those premises or premises that could actually happen. Ten out of ten. I said, if you dig horror movies, I have a bi-weekly show at horrormoviepodcast.com. So anyway, I was trying to sell people on it who maybe had never given it a chance and tried it out. So um, Uh anyways, this guy's answer was uh, two of my personal favorites are Event Horizon and The Thing. Being an old school sci-fi fan, I think there's a lot of great old stories that didn't transfer well to film that are sitting on the shelf waiting to be produced because CGI now makes them possible. So that that was pretty cool. That was a, a listener of the Traders podcast. His name is Brian, so we're thankful for his comments. Nice. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, so anyways, where, where were we? Oh, I just want to thank everybody for voting on the poll question. And, and Doc, since we're talking about poll questions, you said you had a good idea for this week's. Yeah, just something I want to throw out there uh, to, to sort of get the listeners' input on it. Um Listening to some other podcasts, such as Terror Troop, and another one I listen to a lot called Horror Etc., which is just that horror plus, uh, one of the things that they do on occasion, not all of the time, but every now and again, they might delve into a, another genre you know, during, during the podcast or, or focus on something else. You know? And I was wondering if our fans would be interested if just every now and again, not often, but just every now and again, if we were to dedicate a show to maybe a, a different genre. Now, I'm not talking about like we're going to go from horror to, to German family dramas, but <laughs> I'm thinking like maybe um, like 80s action flicks or uh, post-apocalyptic films, you know, something that, that would still be considered like, like genre cinema, maybe even like looking into some of the exploitation movies. Um, I, I was on an episode of Terror Troop where we, we um, actually did uh, – the original Django 
and uh, coffee with Pam Greer. Mm. And uh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, just something to see if, if, if it would be something. And I, the way I was thinking we could do it is it would almost be like an independent study type of thing where we would pick uh, a classification, say 80s action. And then each of us would go off and watch a couple movies or as many as we could that fit under that category and then just come back and sort of do a show on it. Not that we would say, okay, here are the movies we're all going to watch. Just sort of do it in that way and, and just sort of you know come back and say, okay, well, um, here are the ones that I that whenever I think 80s actions, the, this, these are the movies that leap to mind and we watch them. There might be some crossovers. There might not be. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure what they'll say. We could put up the poll question. The reason I say that, though, is because one time I asked on this podcast if people wanted us to cover um, films that were not horror or a classified in a horror genre but were truly scary and um mm-hmm. and i was waiting on some bites on that and i think maybe one one person did but i i was really excited about doing that episode because doc i know of some films that are freaking scary that that don't actually follow the horror conventions and they're not right. meant to be horror but i think that's interesting so yeah, you know me. I mean, you and I both love all kinds of films. Exactly. And I think the majority of our listeners do too. Mm-hmm. From what I'm getting, you know, I'm just seeing the discussions going back and forth and I, you know, um and and David has been great. He's come over so many times uh on my blog and left such, such awesome comments. Yeah, that guy's I awesome. I mean, under movies like Jason and the Argonauts. Yes. Um and that's another thing I think we could take a look at like the movies of Harry, Ray Harryhausen. I mean, how much fun would that be you yeah. know, to, to, to cover those? Uh, just, just something I was thinking about. You know, and it's not that, it's not that we, could, we could sit here and we could do the show for 10 years and do nothing but horror, and we could put out content every two weeks and not be wanting, you know, because there's certainly plenty to talk about in the horror genre. Yeah. I'm just thinking that it would be uh, just, I think it would just be interesting to mix it up a little bit and, and touch on them. Again, not, not straying too far from center you know not not like saying okay we're going to do the the comedies of charlie chaplin or you know or or or, um you know maybe the maybe the comedies of ingmar bergman or something or or not Uh, romantic comedies exactly (laughs) right we're not going to say the let's 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 look at the impact of when harry met sally you know we're not going to go to that extreme (laughs) but just you know like 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 um uh like well, what well, like I, I've said, action, post-apocalyptic, um, maybe you know, sci-fi, uh, maybe like the sci-fi of the of the you know, of the like sixties and seventies, and so things like uh, you know, Forbidden Planet and and the Time Machine and things like that, just to mix it up a little bit, and and just to you know, I, I just would be interested to see if if the listeners would be interested in in hearing that every now and again. You know, like, I don't know, like maybe every fourth or fifth episode or something. Hmm. Well, personally, just just my own opinion as a, a fan of the show and a horror fan, I I guess I would, um, for this show, I would want it to be um, horror related, at least in some way. Like if it were, it's almost kind of what we do with themed episodes, but it sounds like we would be taking like all th- all three of us would come with a different theme and kind of talk about it that's horror related like like horror that occurs in space or uh-huh. you know horror that happens in the snow or like you know or something like I don't know 
Okay. I, I mean, I, that's kind of where I, I mean, I was thinking like, like just going with different genres where some things might, you know, um, sort of relate back to horror. Some of them might, like, I think post-apocalyptic, you know, you get movies, totally. um, like, uh, I don't know, the Omega man, uh, you know, those kind of films where they definitely would lend themselves. Yeah. It's fringe. Exactly. It's they're on the fringe. Be, yeah. They're not, they're going, they're sci-fi, but they're not, they're not definitely, you know, quote horror unquote, but they do have some elements in there that, that, um, you know, could certainly scare some people. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm open to the, mm-hmm. the listeners feedback and what they want to do. So, um, what we can do is put up this poll question. I think it's an interesting one that you yeah. pose. I really like it. So, um, um, everybody vote and make sure like if you're passionate about this, like if you heard it and you're like, Oh, that sounds like a great idea. Make sure you vote. And if you heard it and you're passionate the other way and you, right. you don't like it, then make sure you tell us so we can get a, a good read. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Because you know what? I mean, maybe people aren't looking for that. I mean, one of the things that, like I said, when I listen to terror troop, um, horror, et cetera, and so forth, it is primarily horror you know, week in and week out. And then mm-hmm. every now and again, they will touch on something a little bit different, like on horror, et cetera. One of my um, favorite episodes, they, they reviewed the, the films up to that point of Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. you know, and just sort of went through those and um, the influences of, uh, of the movies and so forth. Um, actually their best episode ever was one that they did on uh, Jack the Ripper. Neat. They just focused on on the on everything from the actual murders up to what movies have been made about the about the subject and what the best ones are. Well, um, well I have two la- uh, two final comments on this. Just my final thoughts on this. Um, number one, I I think that maybe and maybe not our listenership because our listenership is very very astute. But I'm just saying that the general public out there, I don't think they realize how much genre just overlaps like genre films themselves and, and the conventions uh-huh. and how, I mean, I mean, would you agree with that? Like there, there is some uh, yeah. serious, uh, you know, overlapping of conventions and the way that genre films work, like the way horror films are built, it's very similar to the way action movies are built or like sci-fi uh-huh. movies, you know? Yeah, yes. definitely. I agree with you. Absolutely. So, so there's that. So I, you know, I, I totally see where you're coming from on this. But, and don't be mad at me, Doc, okay? You're going to be mad at because no, this is some inside baseball right here live on the podcast that everybody's hearing. But um, I'm, I'm reluctant. I'm worried a little bit about watering down our product, which is horror movie podcast. No, I understand. And, and it's, it's a valid point, you know? Um, and again, maybe people aren't interested in hearing us discuss anything outside of horror, and that's fair enough. You know, again, I'm just throwing it out there. Um, I'm not, uh, it's not something that I've even planned out. But I got uh, a great idea. You're going to love this, though. I, I guarantee okay. you'll love this. If they shoot it down, if the listeners don't want that for this show, I'll tell you what, Doc, let's put together something like that. Because I'd love to do something exactly like what you said. And let's do it over on Movie Podcast Weekly. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it cuz yeah. like I'm super interested in that and we always enjoy it when you join us over there for stuff and like that would be really fun. So we Absolutely. Could... Yeah, that would we can if 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 the listeners of Horror Movie Podcast would would rather not hear that. Mm-hmm. That's 
that's, you know, again, that I'm really just throwing it out there. I don't have any expectations one way or another, and I don't honestly know how people will vote. I do know that most of our listeners uh, like a wide range of movies. They do. They do. But they might already have other podcasts they go to to cover some of these other things. Sure. And maybe for this one, they're just looking for horror, which is fair enough. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd still love to do that with you. So if it's, yeah, if it's, absolutely. if it ends up not being a good fit here, then the people who listen to this show who would still like to hear that will be able to hear us do that on Movie Podcast Weekly. So there we go. That sounds good. Man, we are so smart. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So everybody, please vote on that poll question. It is in the show notes for episode 18 at horrormoviepodcast.com. Okay, Dr. Shock, thank you. Now, we got some new trailers, and the, these aren't all brand new, but these are kind of like, like for example, these first two we're going to discuss were featured on the Internet Movie Database this week, and the first one is Eli Roth's The Green Inferno. <laughs> You know what this is? You know what they're doing to us? Now, this trailer, Doc, has... I mean, well, this film has been long anticipated and long awaited and we both saw the trailer and i just want to get your thoughts how you how you feeling about this film i'm kind of pumped to see it to be honest with you i mean this is it it has it has a feel of you know what i've heard about it is is that it's sort of a throwback to the the cannibal movies yes the, exactly. of the of the exploitation era the uh the cannibal holocaust the uh, uh, cannibal ferox and um you know um jungle holocaust all those type of films <laughs> yes um, and it is said to be eli roth's cannibal movie so i right. think that's super interesting and that would make yes that could make that could be very interesting as well and, and i think the trailer um definitely makes it look pretty horrific yeah yeah and you know what's interesting about that i totally agree 100 percent with what you just said but they don't really show that much in the trailer. No, they don't. They don't. They they imply um, several things. Uh, those who are familiar with those earlier movies could kind of read a little between the lines. There was even one. What was that one from? Uh, we'd actually done it on the horror movie podcast, uh, weekly horror podcast. Are you talking about Cannibal Holocaust? Uh, yeah. No, no. I'm, uh, Welcome to the Jungle. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the, the Jungle. The 2007 movie. The sort of a found footage type movie. You and I did that. Man. That movie, I, you know, I still think about that movie longingly, and I just wanted it to be better, Dave. Yeah, and I tell you what, I enjoyed it. I think part of the problem was you had they had to be the stupidest humans ever <laughs> That's true. for for the things they did. I mean, they were like, you think of think of the of the '80s movie where you're watching these kids and you're saying, "How can anybody be that stupid?" Right. The people in Welcome to the Jungle made them look like. You know, made them look like Einstein and 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 Sir Isaac Newton because they were just so incredibly stupid in right. everything they did. Unbelievably stupid because the premise was excellent. And once things did start to fall apart for them, you did you, it did work for me. Yes, there's a there's a total ripoff scene in there from 
from um, Cannibal Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. One image in that movie is a, is a complete ripoff Agreed. of Cannibal Holocaust. But Damn. that aside, once, you know, when, when those things are following them down the river and just following them and just start blowing the, you know, the darts at them, you, you're like, wow. I mean, this is, this is, if I was in that situation, I would be absolutely scared to death. Yeah, absolutely. And for those just to catch people up in case they're a little bit lost here, this is Welcome to the Jungle, a film from 2007, and we reviewed it on horror, the weekly horror movie podcast, and it was episode two, and it was actually um, Doc's pick for me, and I remembered you liking that uh, quite a bit more than I did, but we both I did, we, yeah. we both rated it a five, though, and said rental. Well, I think part of it was I, I couldn't get past the stupidity because as much as I said, I would be scared in that situation. Yeah. There is no way in hell I would ever justify being in that situation. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) And I had a hard time justifying them getting in that situation. Well, and here's what's painful that that's one of those movies. And I always point these out that I think has a golden premise. I mean, the premise to that is beautiful Mm-hmm. Just absolutely perfect. And they just, it's kind of squandered, to be honest. I've honestly, because, you know, and like I said, I meant what I said. I think about this film quite a bit. And I thought, you know, I remember Dr. Shock really liked that. I should maybe try to revisit it and give it another chance. And I might just do that, actually. Cause- I, I, and again, I, there were things about it I definitely did like. I wouldn't say that because, again, I, I think, I like you said, I rated it the same as you. Mm-hmm. There, I did have some major issues with it, with the characters. And again, it's a found footage. And it's one of those things where, once again, the camera, they keep the camera running much longer than any person in that situation would. Yes. You know, with, with what is going on. So yeah. yeah, I had issues with that as well. It's problematic. And, and the right. way the fights, you know, the infighting within the group just keeps erupting and breaking out and they're so loud and it goes on and on and, mm-hmm. and they fight even when like things are life threatening and it's like people are not going to have bickery little spats. When, no, they're not. When it's life and death, you know, No, they're not. And, and the, the group, the, the, the duo, they get drunk and goes walking through and screaming and, and upsetting things that, <laughs> right. that they should never be touching. I mean, right. you know, it gets to the point where it's like these people, we know they're going to die because they are the most bone stupid people walking the earth. <laughs> so let's just get to it already. Uh, so, yeah. So, it, but, but the green inferno though, in all seriousness, um, I'm super pumped for this. This may would you would you say that this is in terms of major releases, okay, for horror, would you say this is probably the most anticipated horror film of the year? Well, I'll tell you what, it, it's one of mine now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I and plus with Eli Roth's name on it, I think that definitely lends something to it. I mean, some it's not weight. some weight. Not although I mean, not that he's been knocking them out of the park recently. Right. I mean, I think wasn't Eli Roth's name also on the Piranha movies, <laughs> which, think, which, which, so. in all honesty, are were fun. I did enjoy them as fun little throwaway movies. Yeah, uh, but they're not. They're certainly not in the reign of of Hostel, right? Which, which were his, you know, the the um, Cabin Fever and Hostel, which Cabin Fever is still probably my favorite Eli Roth movie. Really. Uh, yeah, it is, and I and I didn't dislike Hostel. 
And yeah. actually, Hostel Part Two, I did, I I thought was as good as Hostel, maybe even better at some points. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, for me, my favorite of his so far is probably the first Hostel. But I tell you, he he was um you know he played one of the roles. He was an actor in a film called Aftershock which mm-hmm. is pretty recent. And I was kicking myself the other day because I realized that we had not reviewed that yet on this podcast. I covered it way back when on um, Movie Podcast Weekly, but I've been wanting to cover it for this show because it's been several months and we hadn't covered it yet. And I think it's interesting to talk about. But Yeah, I, I think so. Oh, and another thing he did I um, was the uh, Thanksgiving trailer for oh. Grindhouse. Oh, yeah. It was just tremendous. I mean, the best of all the trailers and all the trailers. I liked them all, but Thanksgiving was so much a throwback to the seventies that it just, it was just uh, amazing. Well, and I they, would love to see them turn that into a movie like they did with uh, Machete. Well, um, Josh says Wolfman, you know, says that they've been tempting and teasing and threatening to do just that, but. Boy, I I don't know if he'll ever get around to that. I hope he does, though. I would love to, I would love to see it and, and make it like Machete, where even though it's made a few years after the trailer, and when you made the trailer, you had no intention of making a a, a feature film, but yet it incorporated every bit of footage from the trailer into the into the film. Even though <laughs> so. it ended up getting a new cast and everything, they still ended up putting it all, everything you saw in that trailer ended up in that movie. And I'd love to see them do the same thing with Thanksgiving. Oh man, that'd be so good. But yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like we're looking forward to the Green Inferno and I believe that comes out September 5th. Um, no doubt it will probably be in limited release as things go, but that's interesting because I would have thought that that might have been maybe um, an October release. Yeah, I wonder if they'll. Um, well, you know, there I I could see them just trying to ride the wave. The smartest time to release a horror film is probably like right at the beginning of October. Mm-hmm. That first Friday in October is a great time if you can get yeah, a. People are just getting in the mood for it. Totally. You know, they're, 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 as soon as it hits October, people throw up the the decorations. Um, the haunted houses start up and, and uh, haunted attractions. And yeah, people are really getting in the mood for it right at the beginning there. You know. Um, but they stay in the mood through the whole month. Well, absolutely. And I bet you I know his plan, actually. This is something that I think Wolfman Josh would say. So he's going to be proud when he listens to this podcast. But I, I think that what will happen is he probably picked the beginning of September because he knew that his fan base, the horror fans, would all get behind it and see it. And then he mm-hmm. could prove that, hey, this, this thing has legs and maybe he could get a wide release for October. I bet you that's what he's trying to do on that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I hope he does because I'll tell you what I'm going to – and I hope it it lives up to the to the trailer. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the trailer looks – I mean, one thing I really like about the trailer is how – um. It, and I don't know why this appeals to me, to be honest with you, in a film like this, but it looks so polished and highly produced. I mean, it, it looks like it's very beautiful. You can tell it's like high definition. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, it just looks incredible. And it's it's almost like colorful. And, um, and, and usually something like that would bother me because I would say that has a little bit of artificiality to it. But But honestly, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking... I bet this is going to be a full-blown, you know, no-holds-barred, and I think it's going to show it, <laughs> Yeah, as we say. <laughs> Absolutely. So, anyways, um, that's that one. 
And the next trailer that we watched, uh, speaking of, uh, at one point we were talking about found footage, right. is a trailer for a film called Willow Creek. I said that I, I would come on this trip to help you with your film, and it's your birthday, and we're going to have a great time, but I'm not about to say that I believe in Bigfoot. Hi, I'm in Willow Creek, Mecca, to the Bigfoot community. He's all over the place. Oh, there he is. There is a thing we call the curse of Bigfoot. Your friends will all think you're crazy, and you'll spend all of your days searching for something that you never find. I think we're getting close. There's a lot of people back in these woods that just don't like other people in their business. Turn that thing okay. off. Okay. Lucky for me, I know another way in. We're here. <laughs> <laughs> now, Dr. Shock, I was really excited to talk to Wolfman Josh about this because he loves Bigfoot, just like our good friend Boss Butcher. He, right. He's been looking for a, a good Bigfoot movie, and this is Willow Creek appears to be a found footage Bigfoot movie. What do you think about this? I'll tell you what. There were things about it I thought were interesting. Um, you know, some of those uh, scenes toward the end there at night in the woods, uh, I thought were uh, – I thought, I thought that, wow, they had potential – and once again, as soon as the trailer was over, I said to myself, that's why I don't like to go camping. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's one of many reasons. I'm not a camper. I'm more of a beach person. I love to go down to the uh, go down to the beach for vacation. Some people like to go to the mountains in this area anyway, in Pennsylvania. We have the Poconos. We have the Jersey Shore. Some people like to go to the Poconos. Some people like to go to the Jersey Shore. I'm definitely a Jersey Shore. Uh, uh, that's my preference. Um, and part of it is because just there's something about being out in the middle of the dark woods that <laughs> maybe it's all the horror movies. It just doesn't sit right with me. <laughs> right. Um, but if, if I had one concern about the trailer, it's that in the trailer, we get two instances, uh, at least two instances of turn that camera off. Why are you recording? Why does that Which, concern you? It just, it, it is, it becomes a tired sort of thing in the, in, in these kind of movies. I like it in the found footage where they find a way around that, where they're not saying to the character, hey, how come you're still recording? How come you still got the camera going? And they did it really, what was that one um, uh, where the kids um, got the superpowers? Oh, yeah, I love that. Chronicle. Chronicle. They didn't really do it in that movie because they found an interesting way around it. You know, that, that he had the camera and what he could do with his mind and, and everything. And then later on, you had some people like recording with their phones when the big battle was going on and, and everything. And, and I, I liked that there's just something about that whole thing of why are you still recording? They of drawing attention back to the camera all of the time uh, that it's just a little tired now. You know, either either let somebody record, assume that they're going to record everything or figure out another way to tell the story. Mm, I I see. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I can appreciate your point there. I mean, because you yeah, you want it to be. Oh, uh, I know you, you want really, something I mean, like, fresh, right? I mean, yeah, like something in something in wreck when they're going in there, they're, they're doing a documentary later on. I can't remember if later on people were like, Hey, you know, maybe with the, with the camera or whatever, but I got the feeling like that in that movie, you could sort of justify, okay, well, it started out as a documentary. Now they're documenting what's being done to them by these people on the outside and what's going on inside. You know, it, it made sense, mm -hmm. but just the, the ones with like, you get the kids together. 
how come you're still doing the camera? Put the damn camera down. You know, it, it gets drawing attention back to it. It just we we've seen that already. And you know what? It gets to the point that if they said that, maybe people would put the camera down. I mean, if I was filming and said people kept telling me put the camera down, I'd probably stop. Right. <laughs> Well, usually that's um handled like somewhat like it's handled in the sacrament there where you know they they pretend like they shut it off and then they sneakily turn it back on but right. but I'm with you on that but I'll I'll tell you what interests me about this. Well, first of all, when I saw the trailer, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm like I'm kind of I don't know, m- medium, you know, middle of the road on the trailer, but I looked at I looked a little more carefully here. I looked at the artwork and I like how it's like a footprint, but it's also um, a Bigfoot, you know, different Bigfoot walking is the toes. Mm-hmm. And then it's also a skeleton, like a face of a skull in the footprint. So it's got like all three of those aspects. I think that's very creative. The artwork on that is great. And then if you look closer, you see that it is written and directed by Bobcat Goldthwaite. Oh. And for those who aren't familiar with who that is... He, he's the guy from, probably most people know him from Police Academy. He's the guy with the very halting... From Police Academy 2 and then voice. going forward. Right. Yes, he was he was sort of the, the, the lead criminal in Police Academy 2, and by Police Academy 3, he was a recruit. Absolutely. But what, <laughs> what's interesting about that, though, is, because um, I, I tell you, he, he has had a couple interesting films. Now, these are not horror, but I tell you, if you are a movie person, you haven't seen these... These have to go on your list. There's one called World's Greatest Dad from 2009. Like the Robin Williams movie, right. Yeah, now that one's very interesting. And then there's one called God Bless America from 2011. Also um, very, very interesting. And um, He's a guy. I mean, he's as a comedian, I thought he was, as a stand-up comedian, um, his, his shtick would get a little uh, grating at times. Right, exactly. With the way he talked. But he has really impressed me with where he's going as a filmmaker oh yeah you know in in areas that i would not uh, initially um, <laughs> i would not initially believe if somebody had told me beforehand these are the type of movies that bobcat goldthwaite is going to be make he's going to direct and, and write and i'd say well that's either they're going to be complete failures or you're off your rocker yeah and and this guy i mean i i feel like he's a an artist and he may even end up being, I mean, well, I need to see more films, but he may be, end up being someone I would call an auteur to be honest with you, because his films are just, um, they have some depth. They also have some surprises and they're, they're rich. I mean, they're truly rich. And so this is going to be his take, his spin on the horror genre. And what else makes me excited is there is a review for IndieWire whose headline is Forget Godzilla, Bobcat Goldthwaite's Willow Creek is the monster movie of the summer. <laughs> so so I'm hopeful, you know, the trailer, I wasn't like totally blown away by the trailer. I liked it. I, was, I did like it more than I disliked it. It was the only, the okay. only two things that got me were the few times when they drew attention to the camera. It, it just, uh, it, I don't see the point of that anymore. In these found footage movies, let's just, if you're going to go found footage, go found footage. Just like when, you know, they always have to find nowadays, it was never an issue before, obviously, they've got to find a reason why a cell phone's not going to work. Right, right. You know, either have them, maybe they forgot their cell phone, or, or why not have a cell phone work? 
It doesn't mean help's going to arrive in time. Yeah. You know, exactly. it's like they always have to figure out a way. Oh, no, we can't have the cell phone. Oh, no service here. Uh, I mean, they could be in the middle of a metropolitan city. But if if, the, if it requires that they can't get in touch with anybody, the cell phone's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. I'll get, you make some good points, and I'm with you. I wish that um, they would kind of make, mix up these little things that have just become rote and cliche now. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a film that I would say is not looking rote or cliche. This is a trailer that's new. It's for a film called Nothing Bad Can Happen. And this, I believe, is a German film, so it's going to be um, a foreign horror. Yes. So it's um, from Germany, the language in German, so it'll be subtitled when we finally get it in the States. But this looks a little bit along the lines of like an art house horror film. And before, you know, you let people like, <laughs> before people run away from it, um, it, it's getting some comparisons along the lines of like Martyrs. Which, oh, wow. which is kind of interesting. I, I don't know if it gets that extreme or not, but from the trailer, it almost looks like um, I, I it looks like a pretty gritty, hard, heavy drama. Okay. And um, I wish I saw it. I only I only got a chance to see the first two trailers that were we discussed already. I didn't get a chance to see this one. Okay. Now is it is it a trailer geared for American audiences? Meaning you don't actually hear anybody talking. I yeah. I don't know if you ever noticed that a lot of when they do a trailer for for a U.S. market, um, and it, you know, it's a foreign film, you don't normally get dialogue in it. You just get images and a narrator maybe. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and like, uh, you know, uh, title screens coming out just when you thought it was safe to or whatever they might happen to say. <laughs> right. Because they don't they don't want people they really don't want audiences to know it's a foreign movie, you know, because they want to if they're going to promote something to to a horror crowd, they know horror fans are going to check out any horror movie that comes down the pike. Mm hmm. But there are a, a large group of them who would be turned off by the fact that it's subtitled. Yeah, that's that's true. Now, for some reason in my mind, I don't know how I knew it was uh, German horror, but in my mind, it seems like I just I, I, I'm I'm not remembering it very clearly, to be honest with you. And I just watched it today, but uh, I remember uh, it may be overdubbed or something like that. But it seems like I heard it just fine. I don't remember reading subtitles for the trailer so i think it's it is geared for an american audience and um now now here's what i gathered just from the trailer it appears like there's this kid who is a christian he's a believer and um it also appears like he's taken in by this guy who ends up being um terrible terribly unthinkably abusive and perhaps a a pedophile a molester of boys now i don't know if that's accurate maybe somebody else saw the trailer and thought day of the dead i have no idea what you saw but but <laughs> but anyway um but what's interesting about this trailer one little touch that i liked is in the end the title is nothing bad can happen and so the trailer ends with the title on screen and then the word nothing fades away and it just reads bad can happen and it's oh, wow. um kind of powerful so anyway i'm actually hopeful for this but 
if I were to if I were a betting man, I would bet you that this will probably be end up a, being a film that Wolfman Josh appreciates, and I'll probably think it's boring. <laughs> so, so anyway, but I got my fingers crossed because you know the the Germans. Let's let's be honest, Doc. They know how to do horror, right? I mean, oh yeah, I th- I mean, for uh, in recent history, I think the French have been knocking it out of the park mm-hmm. with a lot of their movies. You know, obviously with Inside, yes, um, with High Tension, Frontiers, Martyrs. Those were all uh, from France, and those are some really intense, severe horror films. Oh man! You know, I'm some. I mean, something like Inside is really about as intense as you can get, and and some scenes in high tension. Uh, yeah, you you sit there and you you logically put high tension together, and it doesn't make a lot of sense when you get to the end, but for the ride, for what you're watching while that movie's going on, it's. It's a lot of crazy stuff. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Frontiers and uh, Martyrs. Those have uh, quite a bit of various horror-type intrigue, right? I mean, lots yeah. of different stuff. Absolutely. So. And and Frontiers delves into a uh, sort of Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah. um, area with with uh, as it gets towards the end there. It's almost funny. It starts almost like Hostile. Mm-hmm. And sort of evolves into a uh, into a uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre style yeah. movie towards the end. It's one of those. But, it's got something for everybody. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's and it's a very bloody, um, you know, very violent movie. Very difficult to watch at times. Um, maybe that one's the least of the four. Uh, I mean, there was a time when I thought Frontiers was like, wow, that's like one of the best movies I've ever seen. And and then each time I've watched it since then, I've noticed a few more flaws in it that that, that I don't notice with some of the other ones. And to be honest, I haven't seen Martyrs. I think I've only seen that one once, mm-hmm. but that was <laughs> that was enough to leave an impression. Oh, yeah, me. it sure does. You know, that movie especially. <laughs> uh, but something like High Tension I've seen several times and Inside I've seen several times and those both hold up. Very well, high tension, like I said, does fall apart in the logic department. But the movie itself, the scenes as they play out are intense. Uh, and inside is just, you're on the edge of your seat from oh, pretty man. much start to finish in that one. And you just can't believe what you're saying. I've all but begged people on this podcast, you know, the listeners to to see that or buy it. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, that is just, if, if you missed I mean, Inside, if, you're missing it. You're missing it, it, people. I think one of the more interesting things is that um, when we did our Planet Macabre, both Greg Amortis and Bill Shetty said if they hadn't already done their best of the decade, that Inside would have been on it. Oh, absolutely. No question. Okay, so that's nothing bad can happen. A little bit of foreign horror there for you. And then here's one that I've been really excited about. But I, I, to be honest, I'm a little bit disappointed. I'm not totally disappointed in the trailer, but it took a tiny bit of wind out of my sails. And this is for a film called Deliver Us From Evil. There's two types of evil in this life, Officer Sergeant. Secondary evil, the evil that men do. And primary evil, which is something else entirely. I've seen some horrible things. Nothing that can't be explained by human nature. When you haven't seen true evil. Now, Doc, this is the new um, Scott Derrickson film. See, I, th- I think I've heard of this. Oh, yeah. This is... Now, this, 
this is another um, much anticipated because, uh, you know, for those who aren't familiar, and I actually really like this guy. I know Wolfman Josh likes this guy quite a bit. Um, Scott Derrickson is the guy. Let's see. He did. Um, he directed The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Okay. And he also did Sinister. And um, I heard an interview with him, and he has a tremendous um, handle on on the nature of fear and, and why horror works. Now, I'm sorry I interrupted you. What were you going to say about him? No, no, I, I was just going to say that those are two good movies that that you mentioned. I mean, that's that's so far so good as far as um, you know his uh, his filmography. You know, The Exorcism of Emily Rose was just it was a very interesting movie. Yeah. You know, I thought it it, it 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 had the horror elements, but it almost became like sort of a sort of a mystery uh, as as it was as it was playing out. And I think it was something that actually could have uh, crossed over to people, even if they don't normally like the horror genre. I think that might have been one that maybe other people uh, outside of horror fans would have watched and and enjoyed for some of the other elements. But still, I mean, it, it did have its moments that. You know, there's something about an exorcism story that that just gets me. Even that, even those brief scenes in, in uh, Constantine. Oh yeah. Um, you know, at the beginning of that movie, he's doing one with a mirror. Um, that that just sort of <laughs> sort of really get my my skin crawling. Um, but so that might have had something to do with it. But I, there are other elements to that movie too that I think would appeal to to other fans as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, a couple things to say about this, just to chime in with you here. Um, a moment ago, I was talking about how Scott Derrickson has a good grasp on horror. And this is from an interview that I heard with him once, and I and I loved it so much because it's exactly how I feel. So I saved it, and I happened to find the clip right here for our audience. So here's a little treat you can hear um, from the director of Deliver Us From Evil, also the director of Sinister. Here's a little 30-second um, soundbite. I think that both as a, somebody who makes, writes, and you know, directs horror films, and as a horror fan, that's always what horror has been to me. Is is, is it's a way of uh, there's a cathartic experience that you know inoculates you against the real evil of the world. You know, you go in there and you experience genuine fear, and you walk out of that theater having overcome something and having survived something that that gives you a better capacity to deal with the real horrors of the world. <laughs> Don't you love that, Doc? Yeah, that's a great quote. Yeah, so um, he's a super cool guy, and I really like him. I like the way how seriously he takes it. Um, but now in this movie, like just to read the premise here from IMDb, I mean, on the poster art it says that this is inspired by the actual accounts of a New York Police Department sergeant, and it's um, a film that's going to star Eric Bana. And the premise reads: New York police officer. Ralph Sarchi, who's played by Eric Bana, investigates a series of crimes. He joins forces with an unconventional priest schooled in the rituals of exorcism to combat the possessions that are terrorizing their city. Mm. Now, that sounds like a pretty juicy little premise, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, um, I'm not remembering this correctly, and it's a shame that Wolfman Josh isn't on here to help us out with this. But um, I think it was probably from that interview that I would just quoted from here a minute ago. It seemed like at one point he tracked down this book or this diary that's supposed to be true of accounts. I think it was the inspiration, the real life inspiration for the Emily Rose film. 
And so maybe that's what I'm thinking of. But I don't, for some reason, I thought that that, those accounts were affiliated or associated somehow with this film. I'm probably butchering this, so Wolfman Josh can clear it up in the comments or any of the listeners can. But I think that um, Scott Derrickson really tried to draw on experiences out of the real world for this film. Hmm. Well, interesting. I mean, uh, I'm intrigued. I haven't seen the trailer, obviously, but I'm intrigued. Yeah. Now, see, that's where it, that's where I get a little bit sad, to be honest with you, because uh, you watch the trailer and it's atmospheric and creepy, but like you know, they there's there's like this scene where this like toy rolls off a shelf. And it's like, oh, okay, am I watching Poltergeist? Is this clown going to attack? You know, we're going to have a clown from under the bed right. now. or You know what I mean? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Maybe it's cheesy. Maybe not. But this is supposed to hit theaters in July here. And I will definitely be seeing it and covering it for this podcast. So, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to hold reserve judgment. And I have oh. uh, a lot of faith in Scott Derrickson and his writing and his directing. So, we'll see what he comes up with. And for you fans out there, not this is not to be confused with the documentary from several years back called Deliver Us From Evil, uh, right. which dealt with the um, Catholic priest uh, scandal, uh, you know, with the, the accusations of, um, of pedophilia uh, and uh, dealing with the victims and, uh, and whatnot and, and taking a look at some of what was going on with that. Uh, very powerful film, obviously, but uh, keep that in mind if you go looking for deliver us from evil that <laughs> there are two fairly recent movies that are going to have that same title. That is a great point. Thanks for bringing that up. Yep. And by the way, I know um, Josh has seen that one and he recommends it as a documentary filmmaker. Have you seen that uh-huh. one? That documentary? You know what? I, I haven't yet, but I really want to see it as somebody who uh, for 12 years went to Catholic school mm-hmm. and who I, while I personally never experienced anything like that, uh, I did have a priest. Um, I did have, well, several instances, one in grade school and one in high school, one priest stationed at my church who I know would, would bring, uh, he um, volunteered to help the altar boys like the moment he got there and he would uh, bring some of them up to his room and show them pornographic movies. Wow. Uh, and another priest who uh, was taught in the high school who actually was one of the worst offenders of pedophilia in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, like there were three really awful cases and his was one of those three. And he actually was, he actually was a teacher of mine. Uh, not long. It was, it was like one of these sort of elective courses. He was teaching computers. And even back then we were learning on trash eighties, you know, the, uh, the radio shack computers, mm-hmm. it's even in the, even at that point in the eighties were way out of date. Uh, but that was all our school could afford. But yeah. that's what I had. And I remember some of the girls commenting how it was kind of disgusting, how he was hanging all over some of the boys in, in the class. So, nice. um, so there, there's, there's definitely, well, not personal experience um, as far as being part of it, uh, you know, being involved in something that, that horrific. Uh, I, I was on sort of the fringe of it and I did know um, some, of the, some of the perpetrators of it. So I, wow. I, I am interested to see that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's on my list too. So, um, so Doc, I just realized here we we got one more trailer I wanted to talk about, and uh, you know, I was thinking, 
the the trailers and the poll questions were basically at the top of our agenda tonight. And I'm like, okay, we'll get through that stuff in about ten minutes. Here we are, an hour in, and we still got another trailer. And yeah, we're talk still about. going, and then and then we still have <laughs> plenty of movies to talk about once we're done here too. Yeah, so I mean, we are um we're on fire right now. I guess is what we're trying to say. So I All hope right. everybody's ready to buckle up and settle in for this. So um another film we uh saw the trailer we got the trailer for recently is one called as above so below my name is scarlett marlow and i'm a student in urban archaeology 370 feet beneath this point is a hidden chamber that might contain a critical missing piece of our history how are we supposed to get down there catacombs There are 200 miles of tunnels right underneath our feet. They're holding the remains of six million corpses. Stop. This is the empire of the dead. These are human bones. We go through here. Let's do it. Now, this is a summer movie. It comes out in August, I think, mid-August, and it's a... It's billed as like a horror thriller, and it kind of looks like along those lines. And the premise is that it focuses on these two archaeologists who are in search of a lost treasure in the catacombs below Paris, okay? And when the trailer begins, like if they would have cut off the trailer after about, I don't know, 15, 30 seconds, I would have been so in for this. But the longer it goes, the, the more discouraged I get for the film um it just kind of looks like it it starts it starts out really creepy and really like unsettling and i'm like oh okay we got something here along the lines of the descent they're gonna be down in these catacombs and they're gonna find some kind of beastly freaks and you know i love that but oh yeah but the more it goes i mean the more it looks like a lot of the other stuff that we're seeing and i'm like come on uh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, that went, if if the trailer's not keeping your attention, odds are the film is 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 going to really struggle to do so. Or if the trailer's not impressing you, yeah, you know, because they're that's supposed to be obviously that's where they're throwing. How many times have we said most of the most of the great stuffs in the trailer? Yeah. Well, if the if the trailer is showing weaknesses, that really doesn't bode well for the movie. Right. Right. Now. Um... And this this may or may not matter to people, but the director for this is John Eric Dowdle. Now, uh, people will know him from probably the Poughkeepsie tapes from 2007. Right. I thought that name sounded very familiar. Yeah. Now, um, now that actually we should come back and talk about those for a second. But just to give you this list, he's also the director of Quarantine. Okay. So um, okay, and, and Devil. You know the um oh the the um M Night yeah the uh, Yellow Shyamalan produced yes you know what that might movie. be that might be where I thought I because you know honestly I've not seen the Poughkeepsie tapes well I tell you supposedly and I I'm I'm like ninety eight percent sure that I'm thinking of the right thing here the Poughkeepsie tapes my understanding is that it's kind of hard to find and the the last I heard about that is that film is available like for free on YouTube. But it's very, it's one of those things that's like, um, well, well, let me just give you the premise here. According to IMDb, in an abandoned house in Poughkeepsie, New York, murder investigators uncover hundreds of tapes showing decades of serial killers work. And yeah, I believe this is the, the same thing that I had heard about. 
Now, I had heard that this is very, like, grueling, difficult to watch. It's very exploitative. And so this seems like um, something it'd be for, like, the sicko-type fans out there. And so the people that I heard review this one time, I don't think that they were, like, full-blown horror fans. And so they found it very difficult to watch. But the Poughkeepsie Tapes is a little bit infamous. Does that sound fam- I, familiar it, to you? It does. I, they are. It definitely is infamous. You know, a lot of people I've heard, um, you know, talk about the movie, and uh, even people who haven't seen it sort of uh, give it this this reverence that wow, this is like really, this is something that's pretty brutal. Yeah. So, um, you know, maybe that's something we need to check out, Doc. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, it's it's not available right now on. Uh, DVD or Blu-ray, but I'm not sure if it's streaming. Like you said, it's on YouTube. Yeah, it's on YouTube. There, if you just is search that one of those things where you got to do it for every ten minutes. No, it's in it's in the hour and twenty four oh. minutes. It seems like the whole runtime is here. And um, uh, because I had to watch when when we were covering the Sleepaway Camp ser- uh, series on uh, Creepshow Feature, I had to watch. I think it was the third one. I had to watch the, the stinking thing on um, on YouTube in ten minute intervals. Oh, okay. And yeah, that was so that's, rough, and they cut out so much stuff. Yeah, it's no fun to do it that way, that's no. for sure. <laughs> okay, well, um, this is something I've been curious about for a while, and since we happened onto it and already talked about it, maybe we should maybe we should take a look at this for, um, you know, a future episode, maybe our next episode. Are you up for that? Yeah, sure. I'll, uh, I'll give it a whirl. Look at me putting I, you I on the spot. I definitely want to watch it. No, I, I definitely, it's one I want to watch. I've heard so much about it. Uh, and it's right now, it's just, it's, it's almost like it's one of those ones that's sort of gnawing at me, you know? And, and part of the reason I haven't, obviously, is because it's not available on uh, Blu-ray or DVD. I'd like to have covered it on the blog, but that's what I've limited myself to there. But right. um, no, for the show, yeah, I would like to check it out. Well, I tell you what, our next episode is episode 19. And it's going to be a, a full-blown themed episode, um, which we'll be talking about later. But maybe you and I can get to this, and maybe Josh will join us. And and if we don't record it the night we record that episode, we'll just um, record it maybe on a different night and just I, do we, it. And I think maybe right now we might want to plan on doing that because when we have <laughs> our themed episodes, yeah. I'm usually tied up with... <laughs> watching the theme like the movies we've picked for the theme i'm with you yeah so not a lot of extra time so i think if we're going to record it that's how we'll have to do it so like episode 20 maybe for the maybe or something yeah yeah okay so there you go and i put the link there in your skype chat okay thank you okay so um yeah with that director john eric dowdle you know i'll give it a chance of course you know i'll go see um his his new film there so as above so below it looks well. We'll see how it goes, won't we? <laughs> yeah, well, we will see. And I think sometime this year, Jim Mickle's new movie is coming out too. I oh, know it's man. not listed as a horror, mm-hmm. but it is a thriller, and it has an interesting cast. I'm looking forward to that too. Yeah, Cold in July. I've been watching for that closely. Michael C. Hall is in it, right? Right. And like I say, he's he's getting some. Uh, this is not that he hasn't had. Well, I mean, you know, Michael Parks was in was in the last movie. Um, uh, it's not like he hasn't worked with with any, you know, top line act. Daniel Harris was obviously in Stakeland. Mm-hmm. Oh, and God, why can't I remember her name from Top Gun? Oh yeah, I know uh, who you mean. 
I got to hear it. Kelly McGillis? Kelly McGillis, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, and she, but she had been away for a while. Uh, you know, it's just started to come back, and, and she's been in two of his movies now. Uh, this is the first time I think he's getting what would be considered... Uh, I don't even. I don't want to. I don't want to disparage any of the actors he's worked with already. But this is a different level. Yeah, like yeah. the actors he's getting for this uh, for this new movie is is on a, on a slightly different level than what he's worked with before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So yeah, we'll watch for that as well. Okay, so you ready to jump into some movie reviews? That's enough of our trailer talk. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. All right, so. All right, Dr. Shock, take us away with your uh, the first review you get to tell us about. Okay, um, we recently did a, an episode for uh, Land of the Creeps where we took a look at uh, witch movies. You know, the, the themes, uh, that was the theme of the show, were, were witch movies. And there was one that we watched... Um, it was a recent one and it's an independent one and it fit, it fit in with my indie slog. Um, so I figured I would you know, just sort of talk about it briefly here, but it's a movie from, um, you just bear with me here. I'm trying to pull up the information. It's from 2006 and it's called five girls. Okay. Now it's, it's instead of F I V V F I V E it's the number five. I-V-E girls. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's how, that's how the title is. And um, what it's about, it's about, uh, it opens up. It has Ron Perlman as a, as a Catholic priest at a, uh, at a school for girls. Nice. And it opens up with this uh, girl, Elizabeth. She's one of the most, you know, she's one of the best students at the, in the school. Uh, but while sitting in class, um, the door suddenly shut, and there's, it's clear that there's a demonic presence in there with her. She is fighting it, and she's saying, you're not, going to, you're not going to enter me. You're not going to possess me. Well, when the doors finally open, she's gone. She has disappeared without a trace. Um, that leads to a scandal, um, shuts the school down. Five years later... They open up. They have a new headmistress. Her name is Miss Pierce, and they have five new pupils coming in. Um, the, these five, you know, very attractive young women, um, all of whom have, you know, have been having issues at home, having troubles, but they also all possess uh, a very unique ability. Um, one of the girl, Alex, the main one, uh, has almost like a sense that uh, she can sense that there's something evil in this area, you know, that, and every now and again, she will see the ghost of what looks to be Elizabeth. Um, and there's another girl who we find out just matter of factly can pass through objects in the middle of a room. Like she gets scared when uh, Alice gets freaked out by hearing voices and she backs up and she walks right through um, a filing cabinet. Whoa. And all of these girls have like something about them that, that uh, it's almost otherworldly. Um, and they, but they have been all brought together for a reason. Now, um, the priest, uh, played by Ron Perlman is back, but he's not in charge of the school. This new headmistress is. So he's, he's almost been, uh, I guess emasculated in a way. And he's just sort of a subservient at this point. Uh, when she found him, he had crawled into a bottle, still trying to get over what he, what had happened to this young girl, uh, that was, you know, under his care in, in the school. Um, what I liked about the movie was the main characters, the, the, the mix of them. Okay, the, these five girls. 
in a lot of ways, you know, they're your typical, you know, you think they're going to be the typical sort of characters. One's kind of a rebel. One keeps to herself. Uh, one's very outgoing. They're, they fit into some of the, a lot of the cliches. But they've added that little bit about the special abilities. And it's, it's kind of fun learning what those abilities are and seeing the girls sort of tie that in. Because the, one of the things is the floor that all this happened on with the, with the student has been locked off. Like it, like nobody's allowed up there anymore. Where these girls want to figure out what's going on. They're saying, "Who's the spirit we're seeing? Why are we getting these senses of this 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 presence here?" It might be answered on the third floor, and they go up to the third floor, and there's a very cool scene with them around this this pentagram. Um, and one of the interesting things I liked about it is that this 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 spirit we come to find out, and you might know a little bit more about this than I do, Jay, is um, Legion is the name it goes by. Oh, yeah, from Mark chapter 5. Okay, that from what I understand is that the one that tempted Jesus when he was in the in the desert or is that something different? This is something different. This is the one that was um that was uh, just absolutely torturing the man that was in the catacombs in Mark chapter 5 in the caves. He was like cutting himself with rocks and he couldn't be bound, he couldn't be fettered. And um, spoiler alert here for the Bible, but like <laughs> Christ comes and he ends up casting Legion, which is like 2000 or more spirits. Like That's what it is. Exactly. Cast them out into the swine and then the pigs run into the ocean and drown. It's that story. Okay. That's what, that's what they alluded to in this movie as well. That is the spirit that is in this school. Whoa. It's Legion. Um, now, it does have some problems. Towards the end of the movie, when Legion starts getting involved with some of these girls' lives, he does enter a few of them, and all of a sudden he's sort of a wisecracking type of, you know, sort of a hit type, a hip type of wisecracking uh, demon, you know, with with some zing, with some one liners and zingers and things like that. Oh man, why did okay. he do that? Doc? That I don't know. Like, I don't know. Now I didn't know that? if it had to do because when you see it by itself, it's a pretty horrifying thing, and it doesn't do that. It doesn't even speak. It's just almost like this shadow. But when he goes enter somebody, I don't know how much of that is he's he's keeping the girl's personality. And how much of that is actually Legion, but it's always talking as if it's Legion. Oh, boy. And and it gets to be sort of an action-oriented ending. Um, but there definitely are some creepy scenes, and these girls were brought together for a reason uh, that you do find out about. And what I liked about this is it's – you know how a lot of independent movies – like you were talking about the new Eli Roth movie, how polished it looks. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. This movie looks very polished. Really? It, I, it I would have never guessed have, that from the artwork. Yeah, it does not have – that. yeah, the artwork I think – really does a disservice especially for the dvd covers and everything it really does a disservice for it because this movie looks very good i mean it it looks really very professionally made uh and i really did like ron perlman in it as this priest character uh overall i thought the performances some of the girls yeah they might not have been as strong as others um but for the most part the performances worked in the movie so this one surprised me, and I would probably give it – I'm not going to give it a – like. I'd probably give it like a 6.5. I'd say it's worth renting. Really? Okay. Checking it out. I'm not saying it's going to be for everyone. I can definitely see some of our listeners, maybe this what might not appeal to them because of you know it, it, the whole five teenage girls, um, 
there are some cliches there, plus uh, what happens toward the end. I could definitely see that rubbing people the wrong way. But I liked where they took those five characters. I liked um, you know, where they went with the story. Uh, I thought it was very interesting. So this is definitely one of the better ones that I've seen recently. Wow. Well, thanks for bringing that to us. Yeah, when I looked, when I first pulled up the DVD cover on IMDb and then the the title had a number in it, you know, mm-hmm. like seven is the only good movie that comes to mind that, that, did, that, that right. did that, that was like right. good, you know, and I'm thinking, oh boy, this thing looks really rough. Right. But, and and in the in the DVD cover, even on the poster, it does. It it looks it it looks like uh, you know you're like wow this is going to be ultra low budget here yeah but that's not the case I think they really did make this movie look very professionally made nice okay awesome so that sounds good so Doctor Shock says that five girls is a six point five out of ten and he calls it a rental yep all right what else I was, I was surprised by it thanks for sharing that one with us what else you got for us. Okay, another one that I just watched uh, today. Um, it's a movie. Let me pull this one up too, if you can just give me a minute here. Mm-hmm. This is this one's. Uh, it's from 2010, and it's called The Corridor. Okay, and what happens is it it opens up with you see this guy in a closet and he's looking out and you see a woman in a blue bathrobe laying on the ground face down, and he's hiding in this closet and he hears voices like talking to him. And you don't know who it is. It's a woman's voice talking to him. Well, his three friends come like sort of break into the house because he's put a chair there to keep people out. And they're looking for him. They want to see what's going on. They see the woman laying there. Um, They go to help her. And he bursts out of the closet. Obviously, they're very good friends with him because they're trying to get him. He's holding a knife on them. And he's saying, we've got to get the key. And um, they're trying. They're saying, look, you're acting like like a crazy imbecile here. Give me the knife. And he ends up cutting one guy's face and stabbing another one right through the hand. Wow. Uh, and these are his friends. Then um, the third one tackles him. And with he's, the- <laughs> he's screaming his head off. This is how the movie starts. Wow, with friends like even, these. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we don't, we don't even know the characters. We don't even know the relationships yet. But that's how the movie starts. So it does grab you right away. Now, again, there are a couple of performances there, even in that opening scene, um, like the one friend who got stabbed in the hand. I wasn't as impressed with him in that early scene. I think he does improve as the movie goes on. So there was a, it's not like it was perfect, but it was still enough to get you, wow, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Well, as it turns out, um, the woman who was dead was this guy's mother, the one who had gone crazy. Um, and she had had a history of mental problems, but she had overdosed and he was sort of, uh, snapped and he was and locked himself in the closet. Uh, well, he went away for care. Um, you know, he, and, and now he's, he's getting out, he's been treated. They say he's better and he's finally getting around to scattering his mother's ashes. Um, and all of the friends grew up. Uh, they really liked his mother. They thought she was probably the coolest mother of the group. Um, and they're going to be there for that. Yet there's still this tension because three of the four friends were three of the ones who had walked in on him um, and uh, had that encounter with him. Right. Now they're going to be meeting him for the first time since that face to face. And the one Awkward. guy who was, Yeah, exactly. Like the guy who was stabbed <laughs> through the hand, 
he has developed arthritis in that hand. He had actually played guitar, not professionally, but he was you know played guitar and he can't do that anymore. Mm. So there's there's this 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 sort of. Uh, you know, there's already something over top of this of this of this reunion, and they're going to a cabin in the middle of uh, middle of nowhere in, in, in a snowy landscape. So this does take place in the snow, nice, which I think is another uh, plus for it. Yeah. Well, um, they they get together, and uh, there's a scene where um, the one who had been stabbed through the hand he doesn't ride in on the snowmobiles with everyone else. He goes, "I'm just I'm just going to walk in. I just gonna, you know need a little time here," and it's kind of a cool scene because he walks in. And the friend comes out holding the ashes and he's sort of walking towards them. And the one who was stabbed in the hand says, uh, can you back up a little? Mm. You know, to his friend. So his friend sort of taking it back, takes a couple steps back. And at that, the guy throws a snowball at him. Uh-huh. You know, so it's sort of making it light of this whole thing. So, you know, the, the, I, I sort of like the way they did that because it's almost like, wow, there's still this overlying tension. But then they like broke it immediately. So yeah. that was cool. But anyway, when he goes out, the the um the son uh, decides he wants to scatter his mother's ashes. She she wants to be scattered in a very specific place. Uh, in this, you know, this was her cabin. This was sort of her getaway, uh, where they are, and she wants to her ashes scattered in a very specific area. So he goes out to scatter them, and and you know he's taking meds, you know, to to keep his mind, um, you know, sort of uh, on an even keel. Uh, but when he goes out there, all of a sudden he finds himself encased in what I can only describe as a box. It almost as if like it has the smoky surface to it and he touches it. It's almost gel-like, but yet uh, he can see through it. Like you can see what's around you. Um, yeah. And he starts thinking he's going crazy. Because all of a sudden he sees his mother standing there. Yeah. You know, outside of this box. Yikes. Okay. Well, he goes back and now he's wondering, am I losing my mind again? <laughs> well, long story short, he brings his friends out there. They get there. Nothing happens until the five of them walk to the middle and then they're all encased in this box. Oh. But what it turns out to be is it is something that affects the mind. Like as soon as they're done the first time in this box, they rush back. One of the one of the uh, five guys, one of the four friends, uh, is an ex um, uh, f- uh, high school football star. Now, they see, all went to high school together. Quick question: is that a is that a spoiler? Then is that kind of a surprise, or is that just part of the? No, premise. no, no. The surprise okay. is, I think the surprise is what happens. Okay. That happens fairly, you know, there, there's still more than half the movie to go at this point. Oh, I got you. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Um, but what, what it's, the surprise is what happens later. I'm almost done with the, with the, this, with where I'm going no, with this. Take your as time. far as the synopsis. Um, what happens is that they go back and this guy had brought all of his tapes. You know, he's like a, he's living in the past. I mean, this guy lost all his hair. He has one little tuft of hair in the middle that he combs over. Uh, it looks really awful. As a matter of fact, I even think it looked like a makeup as a makeup job. I thought it looked pretty awful. It looks very much like a like a headpiece, you know, like a makeup headpiece to me. But maybe I'm yeah. wrong. Yeah. But anyway, um, he pops in the tape, and something's telling him to go to a point in the tape. He goes to a point in the tape, and there is the guy's mother giving a message about like she had supposedly found this many years earlier, and this is part of what affected her mind. That it opened doors for her mind, and and now she sees things so much more clearly. 
Uh, and later on, it gets to a point where something else happens. They play that tape back forward. Like, like the, the son was not in the room when they found that. So they're playing the tape back for him. And now it's different. Whoa, Suddenly, okay. it's something different is happening in the tape than what happened before. And it's really creepy what's happening the second time in the tape. Oh, nice. um anyway it 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 evol- it evolves from there that that this box has this it has certain powers to it that they're really that they're really impressed by but there's something that's just not right with it the guy who had been um sick and had been treated he was taking something that was actually blocking this from his mind that was not working on the other friends and it goes to some pretty crazy places from that point on. Wow. It gets pretty wild. And um, I, I can't say that I loved the ending. Yeah. I don't think it really resolved a whole lot. I don't think it explained a whole lot um, where it ended. And I thought it, it I, I wasn't as, I wasn't as crazy about the ending. I would have liked to have seen maybe something a little bit different. Um, but I don't think, I don't know how they could have ended it. I don't know how they, I don't, in my mind, I don't know how they could have ended it better, but there was just something about the ending that I didn't really, I didn't really like it. I'd have to think about it a little more. It's fairly new. I just saw it today for the first time. Yeah. Um, but this, and it does, <laughs> so the one thing happens and you're, you're seeing, you're like, oh my God, are you crazy? I mean, it's just like with, with, with the friends, they, they just start doing something and uh, you're like, wow, this is, this is, this could get really bad really quick. And it kind of does. Okay. <laughs> um, so this is one, I would give this one, um, I'd say it's a seven and, and a rental. Oh, okay. Uh, the, the corridor, I would say it's 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 worth watching. Um, now see, you know, I, and I, gotta, I haven't seen it and it's been on my list for a little while because I believe one of my favorite... Um, horror critics outside of our circle of friends is uh, Scott Weinberg. Um, I, I think he liked it. And I also think that this was on Bill Shetty's list for that year, I believe. It's very possible that that's why, you know, this was sort of in a pile and I had gone through that list and I picked up a few I didn't have. It's very possible that that's where I heard about it. Yeah, I, yeah. Going I th- back through those lists because this was sitting right on top of my pile of new of new DVDs that I haven't found a home for yet. Yeah, yes. Uh, and actually, it's interesting. It was released by IFC, who put out some pretty pretty damn good movies. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think they had done like The Horde. Um, oh, boy, there's a whole bunch of my – oh, like The Signal, I think, was one that they had done. And, mm-hmm. totally. uh, a lot of A lot of really – no, wait, the signal was magnet. I can't remember. Never mind. I'm, no, whatever. They put out good movies. Right. Um, and, and this I would, I would put up there. I think this is, this is worth checking out. I don't think it's perfect, but I think um, it's one that uh, I think our fans would definitely enjoy. So Dr. Shock says The Corridor from 2010 is a seven, and he says rent it. Okay, great. Thank you for that. And um, I you got another one for us, and then I'll take a turn after your next. Yeah, one. yeah, sure. Um, uh, last time uh, when we uh, when we were talking, I brought up a documentary called American Scary. Mm-hmm. Well, this is uh, actually another documentary that I'm going to be talking about. Another one that I had um, just seen, and actually I was so impressed with it that I made it my um, 
Uh, I've uh, already covered it on on the blog, but I did want to go into it a little more detail than than I did there. It's from uh, 2011, and it's called Screaming in High Heels. Really? Yes. Now, have you heard about this one? Um, no, but it sounds like it's like a, a Scream Queen okay. type documentary. <laughs> this was I, this, I was turned on to this by uh, Kevin Batchelder, host of the um, Tuning Into Sci-Fi podcast, awesome. uh, which I've, I've been a guest on that show a couple times. And he recommended this to me. He goes, here's one I think you would, you would enjoy. Uh, what it is, is it is a documentary and it's about... Uh, three in particular, Linnea Quigley, Brink Stevens, and Michelle Bauer, all of whom were in the late 80s, early 90s when the, when the direct-to-video craze came in. You know, when, when the video stores were big and they touch on this in the movie, they talk about how the drive-ins were phased out in favor of the video stores mm-hmm. and how a lot of people were making content to fill these video stores up and they couldn't make these movies fast enough. And a lot of the films that came out during that time were – Horror that some of them had comedy elements into them, some of them didn't, like Sorority Babes in the Slime Bowl, uh, Slime Bowl Bowlerama, um, <laughs> Slave Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity, Creepazoids. Um, you know, a lot of these movies, you get a lot of clips of these movies in here. And what's interesting is, is it talks to all three of these women. They're all interviewed in it uh, extensively, and it doesn't just talk about their careers. It focuses very – it's very detailed on that era, that late 80s, early 90s direct-to-video horror movie, uh, late 80s to – throughout the 90s it lasted actually, of of those kind of movies and how these three – were such a big part of it, how they were making so many of these films. I call that era um, the good old days, Dr. Shaw. Yeah, oh yeah, I agree with you. Some of these movies, I mean, I like uh, Sorority Babes and the Slime Bowl, uh, uh, Slime Ball, Bowlerama. I'm not going to sit here and say it's a cinematic classic, but I enjoy the hell out See, of it. I really do. You know? <laughs> That's so funny you bring that up because we were just talking about that on the previous episode of Horror Movie Podcast, and that's when I had first encountered that and discovered it, like... Because I I did gutter balls right, and then we yes that's right, and that's right. We mentioned that one. You're right. Yeah. Um. And and I'll tell you what, it's it's fun, and and that's the that was the first one that had all three of them together. Now they had done a few other things, like they started as models. Um. One of the things about these three is none of them were were shy about taking their clothes off in front of the camera. None of them. Mm-hmm. They all basically would appear nude in. Practically every movie they made at that time. I mean, you think when I think Linnea Quigley, I think Return of the Living Dead. Oh yeah, Absolutely. where I mean, the best one of the best things about that was her costume in that movie, which was Sans clothing. You know, pretty much the whole film. Right. I, I think if you would have put the time that she's naked to the fully naked to the time that she's actually wearing clothes, I think uh, she'd probably be naked at least five times as long as she was, uh, showing with any clothes on. Um, and that's the way it is with all three of them. Um, and like, uh, was it Brink Stevens? Uh, her, one of her first films was, um, the, uh, slumber party massacre. Yeah. Uh, she was the girl who ran into the closet in that movie. So, it, it, it talks to them and, and it takes you back to them as, as kids. And, and they talk about how they were sort of like Linnea Quigley said she was extremely shy as a kid. And, you know, when she'd be in school, the teacher would call on her. She'd want to crawl under the desk and she never wanted to be the center of attention. <laughs> she wasn't shy later. <laughs> no, she certainly wasn't. She talks about when she got over that and you get to see pictures of them growing up and talking about like um, with their families, like um, 
Michelle Bauer said uh, later on when she was talking about it, she said when she talks to people, like new people, she doesn't tell them what she does because like she's in horror movies because they immediately think porn. Yeah. And, you know, we know that. We've talked about this before. Always. And they talk a lot about it too. And another thing that's interesting is all three of them talk about how, you know, along with making the movies, the convention circuit really sort of changed their lives. And they, they, they actually made some very uh, good friends that they met as fans through the conventions that to this day they consider good friends. Yeah. You know, so they were like really ingrained in the genre back then, these three. They were like the big three at that time as far as the independent scene with the directed videos because that was a big market. I mean, nowadays you hear directed video and, and it gets the onus of, well, nobody purchased it. Back then, they were made for directed video because video was where it was at. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the theaters, other than the, the, the big chains, were starting to sort of die down a bit. The mom and pop theaters were dying down. Then what happened in the late 90s is the mom and pop video stores disappeared in favor of the blockbusters and the Hollywoods, which stopped buying the B-movies. So that's when that dried up. So now when you know they talk about how these girls, they were appearing in movies that might have a $300,000 budget, all of a sudden they're appearing for two days in a movie with a $10,000 budget. Their salary is half of it, and they can only be, afford to be there for two days. You know, like one of those type of things. Where, and the people that were hiring them were the fans who grew up watching them in the 80s and 90s. That's who, who was hiring them now. Yeah. Um, but at that part of it, I think, is really interesting just to see these three women and how they, you know, they, they were, their careers were intertwined. I mean, they appeared in the same movies. A lot of them, at least two of them were in and, and so forth. But what I really like about these type of documentaries are discovering new titles I haven't seen before. Oh yeah. And there's a number of them here. And what I've done is I've, I've tried to like sort of track some of these down to check them out. Like a lot of them, some of them I have seen, some of them I own and haven't seen yet, like Creepazoids. Yeah. Um, or I think I saw Creepazoids way back when. I think I did because I saw the trailer and it looked very familiar to me. Yeah, the title I, sounds familiar on that. Yeah, and that's, I think, Linnea Quigley's in that one. Um, but there are some of them, like there's one that I couldn't believe I, I hadn't seen because they've shown it all over and it seems like it was a big one and it's Nightmare Sisters. That has all three of them too. And it's interesting because all three of them sort of play geeky girls who get possessed and then they become sort of these sex objects. <laughs> um, so that I think was interesting. And there's another one called Grandmother's House that had Brink Stevens in it that, that looked like it, it could be a lot of fun too. Uh, but th that's what it is. And, and uh, like Jacko about like a jack-o'-lantern and just all these movies that I haven't seen yet before. This <laughs> one shows me like, wow, these things are out there. Um, and, I'll, and once I see these documentaries, I want to see these movies. Hey, hey Dr. Shock on Nightmare Sisters, when you said it, I pulled it up. It's from 1988. And on the cover, it's got the three of them looking all sultry. And the tagline is, Hell just got a lot hotter. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, well, they're talking about, I think, one of their co-stars in that. He said, the first day I showed up, I go on set, and all three of them are standing there naked, oiled up with a light on them. He's like, how am I supposed to concentrate <laughs> you know, on what's going on? And this is what I'm walking into here. <laughs> um, awesome. But, yeah, but there was a um, – it's, it's a very well-made documentary. 
and it's very extensive. It, it covers a lot of ground. You definitely get a feel for this time period. Um, along with the interviews, they interview like, uh, you know, Fred Olin Ray and a lot of other directors from that, or a couple other directors from that time. They interview the three, the three ladies. They show um, clips of them at, at conventions. They show uh, interviews with them, like um, how, um, you know, like clips of them on other shows talking about this, how they actually gained national popularity for a while for being in these movies. Um, and they just talk about how the horror genre in general, and the most amazing thing is with all the stuff that's in this documentary, it is 63 minutes long. Wow. And they cover all of the ground that you feel like you know most of what you would need to know about this time period and this specific era in this area, you know, with the home video craze. It's, it, it covers it very well, very extensively, and gets it all done in just over an hour. Now, see, tell me if I'm wrong on this, but from what you're describing here in your review, it actually sounds like the film would be most appealing for me just because of the way it captures that era, like a nostalgic time. Oh, yeah. Even more than like checking out those actresses' careers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, I I really thought it was interesting to, to learn about them specifically. And I liked how he not only talked about that era and what they were like, how big they were. Then he went back to the beginning to show them as kids and, and how they, how they basically became actresses. One of them just happened to walk into a room, I think where there were movie posters and said, Oh, that's kind of cool. Uh, and ended up getting an audition then even takes it to the back end to show how once, once it dried up, what they were sort of resorted, what they had to resort to doing if they wanted to stay in the movies. Michelle Bauer just quit. She said, I'm done. You know, I'm walking away. And she did. Every now and again, she'll pop out and appear in a movie. As a matter of fact, there was just one right after this one came out that all three of them appeared in again. But she's not looking for new roles. Frank yeah. Stevens is trying to become a writer now. And Linnea Quigley is actually helping. You know, she's living with her parents in Florida. They're old and they're sort of sickly and she's caring for them. But she comes out every now and again to appear in a movie as well. Um, so I liked how it just sort of took you from beginning to end with these three actresses, concentrating very, very specifically on that time period. But you got to know a little bit more about all of them. But you're right. I think for somebody like who, who knows this era and knows what it was like to walk into a video store and pick up a case and say, this is what I want to see. And you know how they would entice you with those cases. Oh, yeah. The, those crazy cover art. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that you're going to find a lot in a documentary like this. Yeah. Um, and somebody who'd like to know more about that era, even if they didn't live through it, if they'd like to know more about it, right. they're going to find a lot in this documentary. And on top of it all, you're going to see clips from some movies. That you, once it's over, you're going to say, I got to see that movie. That's what I'm, that's what I was saying. Like even the young pups there that, that, that were, they didn't get to experience that thing that we old timers always talk about where you walk in the video store and just browse through crazy covers like right like death stalker and um raw head rex oh, and, I, I, like, <laughs> I can't I, I can't remember what it was i picked up a video one time where it was about these three kids they loved this tv show and and they ended up like they were fans you know you had the ultra fan like star trek type fans of this of this show mm-hmm. and they ended up getting sucked into the show and being part of it and the cover looked like pretty interesting and i'm like wow i gotta check this out i got it home the show that they were watching, it was done with hand puppets. And oh when they were goodness. sucked into the world, it was the three of them interacting with hand puppets. I'm like, it was like it was the worst piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watched, but I, I watched it. 
Yeah. I'm sitting there going, boy, this is this is really junk. I, this is as bad as it gets. See, I had a similar experience when I <laughs> I rented a movie because I liked the cover or whatever, and I got it home and you could literally see like the steps in it. Like they had like stairs. They were made of plywood, like spray painted gray. And you could see the <laughs> nails in the side of the plywood. And I'm like, this is the worst. It's hilarious. <laughs> I like it when you're back then when they'd be walking on the stairs, you could see the one with the crack in it. You yes. knew the one that they were going to fall through because you could see the little crack in it as they're going up or down the stairs. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Yeah, Absolutely. But but this is this is this definitely gives you more than just an idea. I mean, if you watch this movie, I think it it really does cover it in depth. Um, and uh, obviously, it's covering centering on those three stars quite heavily. But when you think about it, a lot of the movies that that of that of that home video era, they were in them, and it does extend beyond them too. Like it touch, touches. Briefly, very briefly, just as sort of in passing, like Debbie Rashawn uh, and uh, Tiffany Sheppis, who are sort of um, more modern uh, takes on the Scream Queen. But as as interesting as it is, when you think, I think Scream Queen, I think Jamie Lee Curtis, mm-hmm. Adrian Barbeau. But the, it, from what I, if if what I'm understanding correctly from this is that it was during the era of Linnea Quigley in the late '80s that the, that that term came into use, mm, and it was to sense. describe them. That was almost like in retrospect that they had Jamie Lee Curtis and so forth. Now, maybe that I don't know about that because I don't Something tells me that I seem to remember Jamie Lee Curtis being sort of referred to as a scream queen early on. Oh, as yeah. far as this movie is concerned, though, these three were the scream queens. That's interesting. That's yeah. cool. So what do you rate uh, screaming in high heels? Uh, I say eight. Eight. Okay. I, I give this one an eight. Um, I'm even tempted maybe to go to an eight and a half, but I'm just going to go with eight for right now. I've only seen it the one time. Um, it's, it's one that if you do pick it up, I think you will rewatch it. And I think it will benefit you because it will give you ideas for other movies you might want to check out. They're going to be cheesy. Okay. They're, they're going to be yes. 80s cheese, you know, think on the same type of level as maybe a trauma. Right. You know, that's what a lot of these movies and Troma was another one that got real big at that time. Yeah. You know, I remember on cable seeing like Surf Nazis Must Die and <laughs> Class of Nukem High and things like that. Of course. Um, but so the, the, the movies are going to be sort of along those lines, not different, not completely the same. There's going to be some differences. Like a lot of Troma has, it's like Troma's almost always has quite a bit of comedy in their films. Some of the ones, that they cover in Screaming in the High Heels are straight up horror. Okay. Um, a lot of them are comedy too. Like obviously you get a movie like Sorority Babes and the Slime uh, Ball Bolarama. That's not going to be a straight up horror movie. That's going to have some comedy in it too. Sure. Um, and it's another one where they meet up with this imp in the bowling alley and it's a hand puppet. <laughs> oh my goodness. But it was still a fun movie. I still enjoyed it. And um, if you can, if you can look past and and sort of have fun with those kind of films, you'll enjoy checking out the movies they cover in this. And I think even even if you don't, even if you decide you're not going to watch the movies, the documentary is worth watching. So you're saying it's an eight, but is it a buy or a rent? I would, for me, I would say it's a. I'm going to go and say it's a buy. Okay. I think this is something that I think you will. 
uh, get a lot out of this documentary, and I can see watching it again. If you've watched movies like Going to Pieces more than once, which I have, you know, the, the <laughs> slasher documentary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I put this sort of in that in that same vein that this is one I think you would go back to and watch again. Well, cool. Okay, and that film is called Screaming in High Heels, and it's from 2011. As a subtitle of the rise and fall of the Scream Queen era is what the subtitle is. Nice. All right, Dr. Shock, thanks for covering that. And that was cool that you gave a shout out to that dude that, you know, introduced oh, yeah, you to it. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely owe him one on this because he was he was going to send it to me. Um, he was going to lend it to me. The only problem is, is that one of my one of my personal rules with if I'm going to cover it on the blog, it has to be one I own. And when he had described it to me and I looked it up, I said, you know what? This is one I want to own. You know, a lot of people will recommend ones to me and I'll say, well, I'll put it in a wish list. I'll see if I get some extra money or something. But when I saw what this one was about, I wanted to watch it. So I actually picked it up. Nice. Okay. Well, thank you for that review. Okay. Now, I only got to really see two horror films um, to speak of in the last two weeks, which is terrible. It's funny because with Movie Podcast Weekly, it's like I'm either spending all my time on this podcast watching movies for this show or the other podcast, and I just have to balance between the two. But I will say this. This is redeeming. Um, the two that I watched were um, recommendations from listeners of Horror Movie Podcast. Oh, nice. And this first one was um, recommended by Justin. He really wanted uh, us to check it out, and it's, it's called Banshee Chapter. You know, Banshee Chapter from 2013. And I got this, I rented this through uh, Netflix and the Disc by Mail plan. It's not streaming currently, but... Um, you could find it in a number of places. Now, this is a well. They were the filmmakers themselves in the little special feature section. They refer to it as a micro budget horror thriller. Um, it was shot in New Mexico, and it's uh, <clears throat> based somewhat in reality on on like real things that happened. It's about the MK Ultra experiments. I guess that in the seventies, uh, the CIA did these illegal experiments <laughs> that the mm. president didn't know about. And a lot of the government didn't know about it. And they like, well, my understanding is they trapped, they put these people in this chamber and injected them with these horrific chemicals. Um, mm -hmm. The DMT experiments, it's called MK ultra program. Anyway, this is really nuts. And so I guess that's kind of a, a dark and, a little bit unsettling chapter in history. So these guys wanted to make a film kind of about that. And then, so it's based on that. And it's also based um, on <clears throat> that film from 1986 from beyond, um, which is, Oh yeah. Um, HP Lovecraft. It's, it was yes, based on that. Right. Right. Story. Uh, Stuart Gordon, Stuart Gordon directed. Yes. Right. Well done. Uh, um, Scream Factory just uh, came out. Well, not just, but several months ago, came out with that uh, a Blu-ray of that. Yeah. So it's so this film is kind of loosely based on that that H.P. Lovecraft short story from Beyond, and you know these experiments that the CIA did. So that's what you got for kind of your premise. So like the setup is good, I'll say that, and the performances are good, and it's structured kind of like a documentary. Now, um, at times this. This film kind of seems like it wants to be um, found footage, 
but mm-hmm. it's but it's not. I mean, they just use various like, you know, they show you. I mean, I guess if you were technically speaking, you know, they they show you videotapes that were on file, like archival footage of these experiments okay. that happened. So, I mean, you got that. But but anyways, it it's so it's pseudo semi found footage, and 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 honestly, like I had a little bit of a problem with this just because. It observes some of those rules, and then a lot of it doesn't. So, I mean, the, it does not recognize those rules. But I'm, okay. I'm not going to, like, you know, criticize it too much for that. The The big thing that you got to know about this film, like the, the chap, I mean, Banshee chapter is the title. It's not super sexy. You look at the <laughs> cover, and it's like, um, oh, this looks like my anatomy textbook cover, right? And and, and so, you know, because I, I had seen this movie around but I just didn't, it didn't like intrigue me enough to check it out. But what you got to know about this film listeners, and I thank our, our good friend, um, <laughs> Justin for uh, recommending it is it's actually kind of a scary, freaky little flick. Now I'll tell you where this is perfect. This would be perfect for that setting where you've got people watching it who are really like easily scared or easily unsettled. Like if you had like a, a slumber party full of like 16 year olds or whatever. It's perfect for that. Or if you got a girlfriend who's really jumpy and cuddly, perfect for that. Um, you know, but, but also like I'm a person that doesn't really get scared that much by horror films and uh-huh. it has some good jump scares, doc shock. And I'll tell you, there's some things in this that'll kind of like I'll throw you for a loop. It's a little bit spine tingly. Um, there are, on IMDb, one of the people who watched it, they did a user review. It's I Heart Horror Film. And um, the title is, The Parts Meant to be Scary? Yeah, they scared me. That's what they said. <laughs> so, so you get these like, um, there's lots of neat stuff in it that kind of like makes it work well. Like, for example, there are these creepy broadcasts that are associated with you know, taking this this drug, which I won't go into because there's no real point to explain it right now. But you hear these creepy broadcasts and they're really kind of unsettling. But um, two of the most effective things this film does is there are two scenes where things seem like they're warm and safe and normal and happy again. And man, wham, uh, that's when they pull the rug out from under you. I love horror that happens in the daylight so to speak yeah and i mean you've got like two things that come way out of left field and you will not see them coming and they just nail you so that is very effective um and then also like sorry i'm in, i forgot to mention this with that that radio broadcast the transistor broadcast they've got that structured kind of like the music cue in jaws for the theme music or like in um you know, Jurassic Park, you'd hear the stomp. You knew the T-Rex was coming. Right. Or in Jurassic Park 3, you know, you'd hear the, the phone, the cell phone ring, and you knew that big dinosaur was coming. Or in, or in Piranha when you heard the gnashing teeth. Oh, yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I love cues like that. Well, um, this, this broadcast signal kind of works the same way. And I tell you what happens. By the end of the film... It does it at the very end of the credits, and I'm not going to tell you what happens, but um, <laughs> which is somewhat anticlimactic. But I'm just saying, I I was like, I felt myself tensing up, and I was really like, <laughs> I was really like, you know, 
I guess, what's the word? Just kind of stressed out waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, and I thought, well, you know, that's an effective film. And um, they really got me there. So I tell you, a lot of the mumbo jumbo, like where they're talking about the scientific stuff and the investigating stuff, a lot of that's kind of boring, to be honest with you. But the scares, which are kind of throughout the movie, even though some of them are spaced out, it's it scares, they come regularly enough and it's effective enough. But on the strength of its scares, I give it a 6.5 out of 10. And I say, you should definitely rent Banshee Chapter. Um, I think you'll be surprised, pleasantly surprised. And I want to thank Justin again for recommending it. What do you think about that, Doc? Yeah, it sounds interesting. Yeah. I'd definitely like to check that out. Yeah, so put that on the list, everybody. And um, I'll turn it back over to you, Dr. Shock. What do you got next? All right, I have a couple more to, uh, to talk about. Again, sort of in the, uh, in the indie horror uh, realm. Um, unfortunately, I can't say I saved the best two for last. Okay. But we'll get into it here. Um, okay, the first one. It's actually a topic that I find really interesting in this. It was the title that, that drew me to this. And it was, it's from 2007 called Headless Horseman. Oh, sure. Okay. And, uh, you know, it, it obviously, uh, the Washington Irving, you know, the legend of Sleepy Hollow has been done over the years. I remember as a kid seeing, uh, you know, Walt Disney's, um, you know, the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Uh, with him riding through the woods. And I remember thinking, wow, that's being really kind of scared by that when I was a kid. Uh, even though it was sort of a Disney animated, it, it just got to me. There was something about that. And that's what really sort of sparked me with with the whole Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Just it had such an appeal. And then I think Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow ranks as one of his best movies. Mm, that, I yeah, I that, agree. I, I put that up there. I mean, that's probably up there with Ed Wood as yes. one of my favorite Tim Burton films. And so few people, unfortunately, like relatively speaking, so few people have seen Ed Wood. And I think fans yeah. of this podcast should watch it, even though it's not a horror film. No, it's, it's not, but it, it, it delves into the horror and it, and it has uh, Martin Landau doing a great job as Bella Lugosi. I mean, from what I understand, he does act a little differently than Bella really acted. Like Bella was not prone to um, outbursts of profanity. Right, uh, like you got <laughs> from Martin Linda, but it's such a good performance, yeah, and I funny. think it does capture the spirit of it. And I think you know it was always you know one of the old things. Oh, Bella Lugosi, they never paid Bella Lugosi to when he was in the movies. I mean, the guy, you know, when he died, he was he was almost broke, um, and then Martin Landau won an Oscar for playing Bella Lugosi. Oh, that's a shame. Um, it, it's a shame, but you know what? I think Martin Landau deserved it because it was a really good performance. And, yeah. and, um, and, and I would still probably rank that as my all-time favorite Tim Burton movie. It gives you a new appreciation for Ed Wood. Um, that he was a guy, he didn't have the talent to make movies, but he had the ambition and the desire to make movies. And he loved making movies. He just didn't know what the hell he was doing. I know. I feel like I'm the Ed Wood of horror podcasting. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think I, I don't think you can argue you don't know what you're doing. I promise. You know I, well I, what you're doing. That's nice. I promise I wasn't fishing. But man, that's no, funny no, no. to me. Like <laughs> I feel like Ed Wood sometimes <laughs> out here. <laughs> um, uh, well, anyway, to get back to this movie, uh, Anthony Ferrante is the director. Uh, a cast of the only person you're going to have heard of is Richard Mall, you know, Bull from Night Court. 
For those who remember that 80s show, who has also appeared, what was that movie? House? I'm pretty sure he was in House. Was Mm -hmm. it? I know he was in, I know he was in horror. I know he's done horror movies as well. Yeah, that makes sense for him to be. But anyway, the the story, it opens with a flashback scene to 1862. You got two Confederate soldiers. They're walking through the woods. They've been separated from their uh, from their uh, battalion. They're looking to get back with them, and they have a run-in with the horsemen uh, that uh, doesn't go too well for them. But anyway, um, from there, we jump ahead 150 years, and the movie's about these seven friends. I'm not going to name them all here. Uh, they're on their way to a party, and they take a detour, and on the detour, they end up getting a flat tire. They actually run over a bear trap. Uh, they get a flat tire, and they ended up stranded in this backward town called Wormwood Ridge. Um, well, they happen to land there just as the town is preparing for its seven-year ritual of offering up uh, seven victims to the Headless Horseman, who, if he does not kill seven victims by midnight on that night uh, and take their heads, uh, the town and the horsemen will disappear forever. Okay, well, there's this local girl who kind of helps these, she kind of helps these seven. As you can imagine, they start dropping off one by one. Um, The ones that are left behind end up looking, they find this ancient book, and it guides them to what is a uh, sacred sword that a priest had supposedly used, had blessed in his fight against the horsemen so many years earlier. Well, The sword is supposedly hidden somewhere in the town. They have to find it because it will help them defeat the horseman before he collects all seven heads and um, returns with them. So that's the basic premise of the movie. That itself isn't very promising. Just from I I, I wouldn't think so either. Yeah, it doesn't really lend itself to the headless horseman story. Mm -hmm. But as 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 weak as the premise was. The execution is 10 times worse in this movie. Oh, man. Um, and all I have to say, and I didn't find this out until after the fact, uh, although it makes sense, is that this was a sci-fi movie. It had played on the sci-fi channel. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. That explains a lot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this has some of the worst dialogue I've heard. Scene after scene after scene. It is stuff that is either obvious, you know, obvious things that the characters would say or or completely outlandish stuff that no one in their right mind would say. You know, I even put, I did write this up on the blog, and the thing that stuck with me, and this is where I first started to realize it's early, when, they, when they're on their way to this party, these friends, one of them as a joke, you know, uh, well, you should know you're dating your mom. You know, guys will do that. Well, the character replies, I am not dating my mom. Really. Oh, yeah, like that's necessary. <laughs> yeah, that was really so many lines in this movie are Cause, unnecessary. Because we thought you actually were once he said exactly, that. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. There's a scene where later on where these two characters are running to jump into a car. The guy driving the car, come on, let's go, hurry up, come on, hurry up, let's go. He starts before he's even like really stopped the car for them to get in. He starts with that screaming and doesn't stop until they're in. He just doesn't shut up. Wow. Come on, hurry up. Come on, hurry up. Let's go. Let's go. Hurry up. We got to get out of here. Come on, <laughs> hurry. And it's that type of writing in this movie. It is so grating. I hate you, stuff like that. 
I do too. And it's it's just it's just sort of lazy. It's almost like they, they said to the actor, oh, do something, you know, to, to to add to the tension. And that's what he came up with. And it's just like this obvious thing that everybody always does. But anyway, okay, so the dialogue is really bad. All right. The effects are bad too. There's one scene where a character is thrown against this wall that has some hooks hanging out. Okay. It could honestly be, and I've seen bad CGI. It could rank in the top five worst CGI moments I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it is so clearly superimposed over the body. <laughs> I mean, obviously superimposed. Oh, man. Like, I don't know what they were thinking, uh, you know, to put this together. The headless horseman himself doesn't look terrible. There's one kill in there, like the first one, that's kind of interesting. Um, and actually another interesting little thing in this is that it was filmed in a junkyard that le- supposedly led- is, is haunted. Oh. Somebody died in this junkyard and the junkyard is supposedly haunted. Now see, and, that, that alone sounds like a better movie than what you're describing. Yeah, it, well, <laughs> they're, they're definitely, because they talk about how they were doing some scenes at night and some of the cast members uh, had some experiences that sort of freaked them out. Which I don't know if they get into it too much. This is on IMDb too, so who knows? Take that with a grain of salt. But that would be very interesting. But probably the worst thing about the movie is it has no tension whatsoever. Even when the horseman is attacking and he has these characters cornered, there's zero tension. It's just put together so poorly that you 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 never really at a point where you care about what's happening to anybody or what's going to happen. Um, and you're just sort of sitting there and it's playing out almost as if, um, you know, you're, you're not, you're not involved in the movie. You're just an observer of what's going on because you're never invested in the movie at any point. Wow. So at this, if you want to see a movie, I, I, Sleepy Hollow is obviously light years ahead of this movie. Uh, yes. But I would even I would even recommend the Disney version to horror fans over this movie. <laughs> um, uh, I, and if and if if Bugs Bunny had a, had a had a, uh, a cartoon, I don't remember one specifically where he did the Headless Horseman episode. I'd watch that before this too. It would probably scare you more than this movie. Also, um, this one is like one and a half. Wow, uh, this is about as far of, as an avoid as you can get. It's really <laughs> really. Bad. So not even, <laughs> not even so bad. It's good, or I no, want to make fun no, of it. No, and then, and it's it 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 all these type of movies in sci-fi like that play on the sci-fi channel have that potential. You know, like I would say, Mega Piranha is so bad it's good, right? Because you can have fun watching that one. Um, there was another one. I think it was Giant Shark versus Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. <laughs> yeah, that one I think was so bad. It's good. It was at that level. And some of the Roger Corman recent ones. My, this one, my so bad it's good is um, Shark Attack 3 Megalodon. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah, and then there's um, – you get a lot of movies. Like Obviously, Plan 9 from Outer Space is probably the king of the so bad it's good. It sure is. Um, and Egon, movies like that. But <laughs> um, Headless Horseman, it's, it's grating. Because the dialogue will grate on you very early on, and it never gets better. Even the guy who's like supposed to be like the the comic relief is just spouting off obvious stuff. It's just really, really pathetic. 
uh, and I would not waste I wouldn't waste a minute. I mean, this is one of those things. I know that there are people out there that are going to sort of be like, "Ooh, I, I'm intrigued to see how bad it really is." You know, is it really all that bad? And they're going to watch it anyway. I think um, it would be funny to start like you know for gifts for people to get mm-hmm. them movies like this and and be like. You got to watch this. Just trust me. As a matter of fact, let me just, this might be a good way to place a mention this too. Another idea I've had that I thought would be kind of fun to do somewhere down the line Mm -hmm. is we have an episode where each one of us nominates the worst horror movie we've ever seen. Nice. All of us watch it and then we vote at the end as to which is actually the worst. Oh, I like that. And then we open it up to the listeners and let them watch them too and let them pick as as (laughs) which one they think is the worst. That sounds really fun and painful. Yeah, I think it would be both. It would be fun and painful. <laughs> Definitely. Oh man. But um and, and and even as bad as Headless Horseman is, it would not still wouldn't be my pick. Wouldn't be the one I'd go with. Well, no, no. That yeah, there are you can get lower than a one point five, that's oh, for sure. There's no doubt. No <laughs> doubt. <laughs> okay, so Dr. Shock says Headless Horseman from two thousand seven is a total avoid. Absolutely. And, and and if you do decide to check it out, don't say I didn't warn you. That's right. You can't be mad at Doc Shock. All right. What else you got for us? Okay. Um, the other one I watched uh, is a movie called uh, Treasure Chest of Horrors from 2012. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with him. There's, there's a guy on YouTube. Uh, his name is Sean C. Phillips. He has a very popular YouTube channel where every week he talks about the new DVD releases and Blu-ray releases. He actually takes uh, his cell phone out on his shopping sprees when he goes out to buy these. Um, he's been doing these for years. I think he started when he lived in Baltimore. And I'm pretty sure he now lives on the West Coast because he has achieved a level of notoriety doing these. Um, he has a lot of followers. And from that, he sort of parlayed it into appearing in movies. He was in... Uh, Ghost Shark, oh, which wow. was sort of the follow-up to, um, you know, the uh, Sharknado. <laughs> he was in Ghost Shark. He had a brief scene. He was like this guy on a, on a, on a jet ski that they push into the water or something. Um, he's, he's a very, uh, a very big guy. Uh, you know, I'd probably say, if I were guessing, he's probably about like 350 pounds, somewhere around there. Oh, okay. So the camera doesn't love him. I'm not trying to be mean here, right? but the camera doesn't love him. He doesn't have a great, um, you know, as far as appearing in front of the camera, but he's a very likable guy. Right. He's a very friendly guy. Um, He has a lot of fun doing his videos. He'll even put little skits on when he does a movie review for a new film. Uh, He has a lot of fun with it, and it's entertaining to watch his videos. I do have – I do enjoy them, and I do make it regularly – I was subscribed to his channel. Um, uh, And Greg Amortis, I think, is actually – might have even talked to him because Greg Amortis has been putting out some videos as well. (laughs) And I think he might have even – you know, he knows about Sean C. Phillips. Like, we've talked about him. Um, But he just seems like a good guy. So he actually – in one of his videos, talked about how he had this movie he, that he uh, had done called Treasure Chest of Horrors. Now, thinking of it, I'm thinking, okay, Sean C. Phillips, he probably has a cameo in this thing. Yeah. She's done in a lot of movies. No, this is almost like he's one of the producers of this. Um, he wrote and directed one of the segments. He appears in two of the segments. This, as, as, as where I was saying five girls is polished – 
this is entirely unpolished. This is about on the level of a school project. Now, wait a second. Is this Treasure Chest of Horrors 2 or just... No, just Treasure Chest of Horrors. Okay, okay. So they 2012. So they made a sequel to this, it sounds they like. Probably, uh, they might have made a sequel to this. This is called <laughs> Treasure Chest of Horrors. Now it's an anthology. Okay. It opens up with this goofy thing. A guy is a pirate. He's got a, a, a map from his grandpappy. And he goes out to the uh, beach, which looks like it's in Southern California, finds an X in the sand and digs up the treasure that, uh, you know, this huge X apparently is the only one who's ever seen it. But anyway, he uh, digs up the treasure and in the chest are four videotapes that and he said, oh, this is every treasure I could have wanted. Let's bring it back to the VCR. And he pops them in and each one is one of these anthologies. Okay. Um, very, again, very, very rough around the edges, uh, this opening sequence even. Uh, very much what you would expect kids given as a class project, make a horror-type movie. Mm. This is what you're going to get. And that's what the first one is. Uh, the first one, let me see. I'm trying to see what these segments are called here. Um, <clears throat> where is it? Uh, Rotten Classmates. Okay, it's 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 basically this this... These uh, kids go up, they tease this kid who has this, does a drawing, they tear up his drawing. Next thing you know, there's uh, somebody dressed in uh, what would almost be like a, uh, uh, like a biohazard type suit. Yeah. Um, killing people, like a man, like it's like a serial killer. And he's going around killing people, very uninspired. Um, but you know what? It's all filmed in a, in a school. In a high school. And I got to say, as I was watching this, I was remembering like my days of making movies around the college. Like when I went to um, uh, when I was in college and we would have projects for doing uh, videos and things like that and putting them together because it's all the like all the basic shots you need, all the setup shots. It's like very sort of standard stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it, there was something about that. I thought it's, it's not good. OK, <laughs> it's not good. But. I just was looking at it and said, that's kind of cool, you know, that they're filming all this around the school and, and uh, they, they were able to do that. And that, that's just kind of neat. You know, so I was, I was, I was okay. I'm, I'm sort of on board with this. Right. Uh, you know, let's see where it goes. It's not good, but let's see. You know, that first story wasn't exactly a, wasn't exactly a home run. As a matter of fact, it was probably, probably more like he struck out bunting. But okay, <laughs> let's, let's, let's see what else we got here. Um, and the next one that came on was actually Sean C. Phillips, the one that he had uh, written and directed called Vampire's Lust. All right. And it stars his family. I've seen them in his videos. So it stars basically his family and then a good friend of his. And the friend um, goes out. The mother asks him to go out and get milk. He goes out to get milk. He gets bitten by a vampire bat that I can only describe as it looked like the type, it looked it was as huge as a pinata. <laughs> this, this bat that flew out of the sky and rested on his shoulder. I'm not even going to say it bit his neck. It rested on his shoulder, but we were led to believe it bit him on the neck. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So he goes back home and he wakes up the next morning. He has to put sunglasses on. His skin is pale. Sean C. Phillips plays his friend who shows up and they're going to make a movie together. And so we see them running around outside putting this movie together, you know, and Sean C. Phillips is sort of overplaying the role. He's sort of like uh, very over the top or whatever. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, I wasn't expecting, you know, 
Olivier. <laughs> sure. So that's fine. <laughs> and they're overdoing it, and then he becomes more of a vampire. Um, there's a very unfortunate scene where Sean C. Phillips' character, he had just edited the video they made, and he's running down the sidewalk screaming, I got the video, I got the video, like heading towards this guy's house. Um, but the unfortunate part is you see him, he has to keep hiking his pants up, you know, because they were obviously starting to fall down on him. And so as he's he's trying to do the scene and and keep his pants up at the same time. So so it it wasn't meant to be comedic, right? it was not at all. That part of it, it was meant to be comedic with the way he was acting and screaming, running down. I got the tape. I got the tape. That was where the comedy was supposed to be. Right. But I couldn't help but notice that he had to he had to keep his hand on his pants, or else he was going to lose his pants as he was running down the, oh, down the sidewalk, which is a shame. Okay, because I really do like the guy. Um, it has uh, an ending that I'm not. Well, I don't want to go too far into it. I again. I'm not going to be recommending this, but it's one of those things where people hearing it, they might want to you know, check it out. Um, so that really doesn't go anywhere either. But again, it, neither one of these are what I would say would be the worst films I ever saw. Uh, you know, well, okay, the, um, the, uh, the one with the uh, rotten classmates, yeah, that was pretty bad. Yeah. Vampire's Lust, while definitely not good, would not be among like the most terrible things I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Okay, then we get to <clears throat> the longest one called Resident Emo. Oh no. All right. Yeah. Resident Emo. Uh, it's about a kid. He likes to cut himself and he's part of this group. Um, anyway, what is going on in this movie? I honestly don't know. There was no script. There was <laughs> clearly no script for this entire thing. People are just spouting off what they want to spout. It has a cameo by Lloyd Kaufman. Oh, my goodness. Okay. He plays a meat man who his scene is sitting on the toilet with fart noises and gas noises and and talking about meat. Oh, boy. Out of the blue, he calls one of the girls to warn them that her friend is going to become a zombie. Out of the blue, meaning this guy did nothing but talk about meat. Then he picked up his phone, called a girl. We have no idea how he knows her. And she's the one who happens to be next to the star. He starts saying, oh, this meat man, what does he know? I know. This is where I knew there was no script because what he's saying, he's just spouting off. Okay. Right. At, by this point, there was really no structure to it. Just all of these sort of random things happening. From that point forward, it gets 10 times more random. It suddenly becomes a class project where the kids in class sit around watching it would crack each other up and it would be painful for anybody else sitting there watching it. Yeah, I know what you mean. You know what I mean? Like they, they're doing all these jokes. There's there's uh, jokes where there's vomit. There's jokes where a girl pees in a cup and sells it as lemonade. Same girl uh, talks about uh, how she's going to have a Hershey whatever, and then they show like she's crapping and on, on the ground. Meanwhile, she never takes her pants off for this. All this stuff happening. Um, zombies pop out of the blue. Just constantly new characters being attacked by new zombies. Then it cuts to another scene, more new characters, more new zombies. The blood is never the same. In one scene, it's clearly somebody squirting someone else with a Heinz ketchup bottle. 
Wow. Another one, they're reaching in for guts. It's spaghetti sauce because the guts are uh, what look like linguine noodles. <laughs> a third one, the blood is like a red sort of gel that just sort of that just drops. Uh, there's never any consistency. It's listed as one director, but I really got the feeling that they were just saying, kids kept coming up, can I be in your movie? Can I be in your movie? And they would make up a scene for these kids to be in the movie. Yeah. You know, and that, that, and then they all got together, had a viewing, cracked each other up, but that's really where at that point they should have said, okay, now let's erase it with, um, you know, let's, let's, uh, the price is right. as on, let's tape that. They really should have gone over the tape at that point and never should have let anyone see it. It, is beyond uh, it wears out his welcome so quick and it's the longest of the segments it's well really I'm, really brutal i was initially morbidly curious in the beginning of your review but this is mm-hmm. something that sounds like a, a very strong avoid as well oh <laughs> yes i mean even by the time we get to the fourth segment which is a uh, mama it's a it's a mannequin Okay, a, a woman goes out and buys a mannequin for her daughter. She's doing this project where she's going to be, um, uh, you know, putting together a dress, and it's her birthday. Uh, so at her birthday party, they bring the mannequin back. They he buy, she buys this mannequin from this sort of strange guy who says uh, its name is I don't even remember Yolanda, um, but that's her name. Don't call her anything but Yolanda. Well, later on, there's a scene where one of the guys at the party she goes go get the uh, go get the mannequin, bring it in for the daughter. He goes out in the garage and he starts having sex with the mannequin. He's calling it by the, the name of his former girlfriend. The mannequin comes alive, um, uh, pulls his scrotum off. Whoa. Yeah, and uh, you don't actually see it. It's act- it looks more to me like, um, uh, you know those whoopee cushions? Yeah. yeah. It looks more to me like a whoopee cushion that they, they put a couple, you know, uh, like bouncy balls in or something. That's <laughs> uh, what it looked like to me. But anyway, um, uh, and very little blood. You would think if somebody had their uh, their scrotum torn off, oh, there would at least be some blood. He's just got a little bit on his T-shirt. Okay. Okay. Uh, the, the thing comes alive. They do show it like walking around. It, it does end up killing people. It moves so slowly. You don't know how it could possibly catch anybody, but it does. Um, and then uh, it knocks over some people, it, it, and, and the mother finally realizes what set it off was somebody called it something other than Yolanda. She walks out about to be attacked, calls it Yolanda, and then it just stops and falls over, and it's a regular mannequin again. Oh, I'm spoiling you. this one because, you know what, by this point, it's pretty clear I'm not recommending the movie and i wanted to at least have one segment where you see where the payoff goes with these damn things yeah right. okay now <laughs> at first i was feeling i knew i i was going to not this is not going to be a recommend for me i knew that going in i knew that after the first segment i knew that after the pirate segment at the beginning that i was not going to be recommending this movie not just because of the look of it you know you can get past that if something interesting is happening um but that's the problem is you don't really get anything new or interesting in any of these segments. It's a lot of the same old stuff that you've gotten before. And I did feel a little bad because it's almost as if I was like a teacher being harsh on a student's project is what it was feeling like to me. And I didn't, you know, I'm sort of like, I, I hate to be in that sort of position, but, but, but yeah, I would, uh, if, if I were to possibly even tell people, any of our listeners to possibly check this out, I would have a group with pitchforks outside my house wanting to drag me out and, right. and crucify me. So 
This is, I'm not going to go as low. I'm going to give it a 2.5. It's an avoid, though. It's definitely an avoid. And Headless Horseman, I will say, was worse. And that's saying something. Something paid for the sci-fi channel was worse than these class projects. (laughs) Okay? Not that they're good. They're not good. But I would still say the Headless Horseman was was a a full point worse Okay. Than, than these movies. And I would be interested to see what Josh would think of something like this because he is a filmmaker. And this is put together by people who – well, one guy who got famous on YouTube um, and other people who even if they – you don't know, like – there's no way anybody who did that resident emo had any idea of becoming a filmmaker. It was just let's goof around. This just, and, make, this just makes me more determined because uh, – you know, Josh is always talking about doing a horror film, and um, I don't know, about a year and a half ago, he was talking to me about working on a script, and this makes me think, man, we should give it, a, take a crack at this. Well, let me put it, let me put it this way. <laughs> we can't do worse. Right. <laughs> right. We, can't, we, can't, we can't possibly do worse. If we decided to do, if we were decided to do a stop motion sparkly vampire movie with sock puppets, oh, no. I think we can do better. Well, we could definitely do better than Headless Horseman. <laughs> um, well, but I think we could at least be on the same, on the same level as some of what I saw in Treasure Chest of Horror. Well, you know, on, on one hand, it's like stick to what you know. But on the other hand, it's like Josh is a filmmaker. And yes. since we're we're film critics and we're always putting out our very strong opinions and passing judgments on everybody else's projects, it's like, well, maybe one of these days we should put our money where our mouth is and, you know, see yeah. what we come up with. And um, I'd love to have create could, a little could, film, have the listeners judge it. We could be, we could be like the, um, what the podcast new wave. What, because like the French new oh, wave, yeah. that's exactly <laughs> what they did. You know, Truffaut and Godard, they started as critics. Yeah. Um, and as a matter of fact, what was it? Uh, Truffaut had angered so many, uh, in the, in the, in the, in the French uh, movie industry that he was barred from the 1958 Cannes Film Festival <laughs> uh, from attending because he because he had he'd rubbed so many people the wrong way. Yeah. His movie his movie played at the 1959 Cannes Film Festival. That's awesome. Yeah, That's so awesome. All right, well let's um let's move into some more worthy <laughs> films here. Okay. Now I got one for you, Doctor Shock. Uh, this one is actually from our good friend. Um, Rardo recommended this. Oh, okay. Yeah, now this is The Road from 2011. Now, just to clarify, it's not the adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's The Road. When you when you had sent the email, I was thinking, wondering if that because I've seen that. Right, me too. Which is which is great, by the way. Yes, I, I love that film. It really is. And um, that, yeah. Oh, who was that? Um, uh, starring in that Viggo Mortensen. Big, I was going to say from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Viggo Mortensen. Yes. And for listeners out there who are readers, the the Cormac McCarthy novel, The Road, is a masterpiece. I'll just tell you that right now. But and the film is also quite good. That's from 2009. But that is that is not what we're talking about. But by and the I, way, and by and your favorite actor has a small role in that, doesn't he? <laughs> my, uh, do you mean um, Robert Duvall? Yes. I believe he is in that, as I recall. Yes, he, I, I believe, I think they run into him when they're out on the road. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, but that that film, The Road with Viggo Mortensen, that is currently streaming on Netflix, and it's a, it's a must-see, but it's like post-apocalyptic. Right, no. I, would say it's, I would say it's a must-see, too. It's a grim movie. Yeah. You know, don't, don't expect to, to come out of it smiling. And but. Not, not horror, you know, but, but anyways. No, but, but definitely disturbing. 
For sure. Now, so this is totally different. Rardo recommended um, a film from the Philippines. So it's a foreign film. It's subtitled, and it's called The Road, and the date on that is 2011. And by the way, this is streaming on Netflix. And I'll just, just a little note about that. Um, this might not be the case with everybody in the U.S. here, but um, this film on Netflix already like had subtitles on it. And so when you stream it, if you don't turn off the subtitles that I guess comes with Netflix or whatever, I don't understand exactly how it works, then it ends up having double subtitles on top that overlap each other. So on your streaming on Netflix, you can actually turn off the subtitles and then you just have one set of subtitles, which is which is much more effective. So I just wanted to give that little side note there so nobody <laughs> has that frustration like I did. But anyway, this was written and directed by uh, Yam Laranis. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And when this opens up, Dr. Shock, it is gorgeous. Just beautiful opening shot, incredible, gorgeous film. And you can tell that you've got some really, um, like some serious technical prowess in the filmmaking on this. But uh, well, let me just try to think here how I should even frame this discussion. A couple of things here. Um, number one, I would classify this like it's a three-parter type of movie. Like it's it's a drama, it's a thriller, and it's horror. But you know they're in that order, so I just want people to know that. And it's it's divided up into three parts, and it's almost like three short films that are interrelated. And um, but but it's all supposed to be the same story. So I'm going to take a little bit of a film critic license here and just kind of give the audience and I hope Gerardo agrees with me and is okay with this but I think that people will have a much easier time watching this film if they know that it's divided into three parts so there's the present which in this film is 2008 and that kind of follows these this detective these cops they're doing a police procedural and these missing girls and there's also like some supernatural elements there in that and then part two of the film flashes back 10 years earlier to 1998 okay and there were different girls who were missing at that time and they were still missing by the 2008 present right now that sounds very confusing and that's why i'm kind of laying it out like this and then there's a third part of the film which goes back 10 years farther and it's 1980 88 okay and this gives you like the backstory and kind of the human drama that explains um you know why things are like they are we'll just say that so this is the kind of film like when when it first opens up though in in the 2008 it reminds me a lot of that film in fear which i've reviewed before on this podcast um you got these kids They've kind of hijacked their mom's car and there's like two girls and a guy and they're driving along this kind of rural road. It's the road as in the title. And they just keep stopping and they keep switching drivers and then another car drives by and keeps passing them. And it's just the same thing over and over and they get lost. They can't find the exit from the road. They keep seeing the same tree and I'm like, oh, I'm watching In Fear. I'm stuck watching that movie again. And so I was immediately frustrated, you know, after you get by the beautiful opening. And 
this movie just made me feel really impatient. And I oh. and I'm sorry. And and don't worry, Rardo. This goes a good place. You'll you'll be happy with where I come out on this eventually. But um, at first, I was watching the clock on this. And this movie's a little bit longer than most typical horror movies. So um, I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe how much. Is it is it going to go on like this the whole time? Because it was like, have you ever ridden in a car dock with somebody who's learning how to drive a standard for the first yes. time? And it's like yes. jerky. It's like starts and stops, starts yes, and stops. Yes, exactly. That's what it felt like watching this film I've at been first. in people who've driven for 25 years who did the jerk. Uh, stop and start so yeah i know exactly what that you're talking about yeah so it kind of, it was kind of making me nuts because like you know i was trying to get a, in a rhythm and kind of get some momentum going in the film and it wasn't and then you know when it jumps back to the second portion um 1998 it's very quiet and the characters don't say much in that part of the film so it, it almost feels like a silent film and yet, it still, as I said, looks beautiful. It's gorgeous. It just has terrible pacing. So, what kind of movie is this? I feel like I'm I'm talking around it, but not about it. This is kind of a supernatural film. It's definitely like a haunting type of movie where you've got, you know, the classic haunting experience where people have had a traumatic, tremendously awful, unthinkable thing happen to them. And they are upset, and so they show up, right? So that that's kind of the idea there. That it's it's a supernatural film. So I just give you that. Okay. But, and and it's also you know um, I don't want to say much more about it because I went in totally blind. But if if you're the if you're a patient viewer, I'll, I'll say that like then this is the kind of movie that I think you'd appreciate. Like I think that somebody like Josh could get behind this. And Dr. Shock, I think you would appreciate it. Okay. Because it is it is well made. I know um one of the best scenes, I just want to describe this, so watch for it. There's a disturbing rack focus shot. And if people aren't familiar with this, rack focus is when you have the foreground, you see something in the foreground, which in this case is a little boy, a young boy, he's in focus. But then there's something in the background that's blurry. And then rack focus is when they switch it and then the foreground becomes blurry and the background becomes just extremely sharp. And then you can see what's back there. Uh-huh. So people watch for that shot. It's tremendous. It's very chilling. It's awesome. And and what I like best about this film, Rardo, I'm glad you ended up recommending it to me. And I'm glad I watched it because um, it captures something about horror that I think that people... Um, or a lot of films miss, Doc, and that's sometimes horror is about the absence of peace. It's not just about chaos or, or monsters. Sometimes it's just about having the absence of peace. And in this case, the individuals who are haunted by these awful experiences have an absence of peace. So, um, Rardo, I'm, I'm going to give this a 6 out of 10, and I say it's worth renting um, or at least streaming on Netflix for people who don't mind foreign films and subtitles. You don't mind a slow burn, and you're ready to sit down and be patient. So um, I say check out The Road from 2011. Okay. Does that sound like your cup of tea, Dr. Shaw? Yeah, I might, I might check it out, yeah. Yeah. Be so, interesting. All right. Well, I, I understand you got some some very special uh, Bella Lugosi material for us next. Yeah, yeah. I had uh, recently seen a film not too long ago. 
Um, and I'm pulling it up here, as a matter of fact. Um, what really struck me is, you know, a lot of the Lugosi movies I've been seeing recently, I've been uh, from 1940s or, or later. Uh, you know, some of the um, unfortunate ones that he did do with Ed Wood. Uh, with, with, even in those movies, Bela Lugosi, he, he always gave his all. He gave, always gave you everything he had. And, <clears throat> you know, a, a lot of those actors did. And, and that's one of the things that um, I think makes Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein such a, f- a good movie. Oh, I love it. Is that, is that Abbott and Costello are doing the comedy Everyone else is in a horror movie. They're dead serious. <laughs> Absolutely dead serious. Bella Lugosi never gets in on the joke. Um, Lon Chaney Jr. has tons of scenes with Abbott Costello. He never gets in on the joke. Yeah. He is dead serious in that movie as well. So you are watching a horror movie with Abbott Costello doing comedy bits that are actually pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, I really do like that scene with him at the coffin. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, I think that's probably one of their best, other than, you know, who's on first. I think that's probably one of their best sequences. It is classic. It's great yeah, and, timing and everything. Yeah, Absolutely. And it's, it really is, that's what makes that movie so good is that they are playing it. The, the actors like that are playing it straight. There's even one great behind the scenes sequence. What it was is Abbott Costello kept this one little guy around. He was a, a fellow comedian. And every now and again, he would break up one of the takes, just come walking in break up one of the takes and then they'd sort of throw things at him as a joke, you know, but he kept things light on the set. Yeah. Well, there's a scene where Bella Lugosi is walking across. Um, he's at the top of a staircase, you know, you, you sort of see the, um, you know, he's walking across and comes walking down the stairs, delivering his line. Well, this little guy's behind him. Okay. He's ruining the take. He's behind him the whole way following him finally costello has to point out to, to bella lugosi he's behind him bella lugosi turns around sees this guy and goes you and then the camera cuts <laughs> from what i understand bella lugosi tore into this guy yeah <laughs> for, for ruining his take <laughs> you know he like he tore in him if you get the special edition blu-ray and even the the dvd special edition of abbott costello meets frankenstein you will see what i'm talking about because that is on there <laughs> And when he ruins Bella's take, he turns around. Bella is none too pleased, right? <laughs> that this guy ruined his take. That's awesome. Yeah, because he was he was a, he was a, a consummate professional. He always gave it his all. You watch the scenes he did in, um, like uh, Bride of the Monster, mm-hmm. um, or even Glenn or Glenda. You know, we can't really talk about um, the plan after Outer Space because he was dead by that point. You know, he could There's nothing he could do. Those were home movies that would shot and threw them in there to, to get one last, you know, Bela Lugosi's last movie. Yeah. But you watch him in Bride of the Monster, you watch him in even Glenn or Glenda, he's trying, he's acting, he's doing Bella, what Bella Lugosi does. Um, the, the script is not up to snuff, obviously, but he's, do, he's trying his best. Well, anyway, what I really liked about this movie I'm going to talk about is it's from 1932. It's a very early um, Bela Lugosi movie. He made this very soon after he made Dracula. And it's called Shandu the Magician. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, it is. And, and he plays um, – he doesn't play the title character, although they did turn this into a serial after this movie came out. And Bela Lugosi was cast as Shandu in the serial. But in this one, um, he played – well, the, the set, basic setup is is that 
uh, this guy Frank Chandler. He's just created his. He's just completed his mystical training, uh, and he's made a yogi by these Hindus. You know the Hindu masters, and they give him the honorary title of Shandu. And his first assignment, he goes to Egypt, where he's uh, got to help his brother-in-law. Uh, who created a uh, powerful death ray. And as soon as he finished work on it, he was kidnapped by this guy named Roxor. That's who Lugosi plays, who wants to use the ray to destroy some of the world's biggest cities, (laughs) Um, London and New York and so forth. Um, No real talk about why this guy created a death ray as to what positive uh, you know, what he could do for that, for society, what this death ray, what sort of, you know, uh, positive, uh, what, what, what he could do, you know, what, why did he create the death ray? You know what, he, this was a scientist who's looking to like help the world. I don't see what a death ray would do to help anybody, but anyway, he created a death ray. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, so, uh, it's, it's up to Shandu. He, he actually re, uh, becomes reacquainted with the, the princess, um, Naji who he had had a previous romance with and uh, the two of them uh, fall in love again. And she sort of follows him around on his adventure uh, to go uh, stop Roxor. He's kidnapped the brother-in-law and uh, locked him away, ends up luring the rest of the family in there and is trying to get him to show him how to use the death ray. And the, and the brother-in-law refuses to do so. You're going to use the death ray for, for, you know, for evil. Uh, whereas I was going to use it for good, but whatever. Uh, he doesn't say that actually, because like I said, there's, I don't know what good can come from a death ray. Anyway, um, the movie has three strengths to it. Okay. The actor playing Shandu is not one of them, but it's not, I can't say it's really his fault. He's actually just not an interesting character. Mm-mm. He's the title character, but he's, he's, He's just not interesting. That's problematic. You know, a lot of it is um, his eyes. He uses his eyes to control his powers. A lot of it is mind control. Okay, so half the movie he's staring at his enemies. The other half he's trying to woo the princess. Okay, there's just not a lot to him to make him interesting. Um, where the, the three who really worked, the, where it really worked for this is one of the co-directors is a guy named William Cameron Menzies. William Cameron Menzies uh, was an art director for a lot of silent films. He did the art direction on the original uh, Douglas Fairbanks Thief of Baghdad, Douglas Fairbanks Sr. Thief of Baghdad, which has some tremendous set pieces, some really good special effects. And William Cameron Menzies also helped with the special effects with this movie, where there are some. I mean, there's a scene where these three guys are holding uh, rifles on Shandu and he has them turn into snakes which is not bad. Mm-hmm. And the set pieces, the Egyptian set pieces are very impressive. So you can definitely see William Cameron Menzies' work uh, in this film with those things, you know, with the sets, with the special effects. Um, another strength it has is uh, James Wong Howe was, worked the cinematography. This was an early one for him. He, he, over his career, he'd be nominated for nine Oscars. He'd win twice. One of the movies he won for was HUD. You know, the 1964 Paul Newman movie. Yeah. Uh, James Wong Howe is, is one of the best regarded cinematographers in Hollywood history. Again, this was an early movie. It was not his first, but it was an early movie for him. And you could see how the camera movements. I mean, there's this great scene where the camera sort of moves in and follows people through the halls and everything. So he was sort of cutting his teeth on this movie, too. 
and doing a really good job because the camera does move in some interesting ways in the movie. And of course, the third one for me was Bella Lugosi. Okay. He is 10 times more interesting in this movie than um, the lead character. He's, he does the villain role. Good. You want to see him lose. Okay. Even with Bella Lugosi, he's acting so well, but he's so, he does it so well that you actually want to see the bad guy beat him, even though the bad guy doesn't interest you in the, I'm the bad guy, the good guy, Shandu doesn't interest you in the least. You still want to see him win because that's what Bella Lugosi, that's what, that's how he works on you in the movie. Um, and he's got some of the great line deliveries, like the he's talking to the princess at one point. And she says, do you want to set yourself up as a pharaoh? And he goes, pharaoh? I'm going to be more pop, you know, more powerful than any pharaoh. You know, he's sort of throwing it out like that, but delivering it as only Lugosi can. Um, he is one of he is the third strength. Those three alone do make the movie worth seeing. OK, OK, it's not one of the better. Um, and it's not a universal movie, which really kind of surprised me, even though, um, you know, uh, Lugosi had just done Dracula. This was not a universal uh, horror movie. Uh, I'm not sure. I can't remember what studio it was. He was loaned out, I guess, to make this one. But it's an early performance by Bella Lugosi, and that's why I really wanted to, to check it out. Ultimately, I'd give it probably a, a 5.5, just above average. Um, for the three reasons that I gave you, I would say if you like old time horror uh, or old time movies, even it would be worth a rental if you can find it anywhere. Okay, is it pretty? Is it pretty difficult to track down then? Or well, it's part of. I have it as part of a set. Uh, it it came uh, with these three movies. That's what it is. I think it's Fox. I think this was released by Fox. Uh, it was on there with two other movies. One of them was Dragon Wick, uh, an early uh, Vincent Price movie. Um, and then it was Shandu. What was the third one? Shoot, I actually looked at that one already, too. I can't remember what that one is. But it was it was this it came as a set on this these Fox horror uh, film set okay. uh, is where I have it. Nice. OK, cool. You know, but I would say it's it's it's, you know, if especially if you if you like um, Bella Lugosi. That's what uh Wolfman Josh would call a deep cut. That's obscure. Like yeah, that. oh, it is. It is. I mean, this is not one that's that's you know well known. I had never heard of it before this, and I was like, wow, a, a very early. You know, I get a chance to see an early Bella Lugosi performance, and I really wanted to to see it because a lot of what I've been left with have been late forties, early fifties, where he's starting to you know he's getting toward the end there. Cool. Okay, and with that in mind, um, this is something I was going to do. I was going to review this on the last episode, and I know you had the, the issues. Um, Skype, yeah. Yeah, the Skype issues. <clears throat> and uh, what I was going to follow it up with is actually a list of five Bela Lugosi movies that if anyone out there is not really familiar with, uh, with Bela Lugosi and you have an interest in old-time horror, some people don't. You know, they, they, It just doesn't interest them. It's not why they watch horror movies, and that's fair enough. But if you have an interest in going back to some of the older films and checking them out, there are five Bela Lugosi movies that Bela Lugosi is in that I would point you towards to say, okay, these movies are worth checking out um, you know, to, to get an idea of who he was as an actor and gives you an idea of what, what old-time horror was like. Yeah. Okay, number five on the list 
is uh, Murders in the Mo- in the Rue Morgue. That's another one from 1932. Okay. Uh, it's based on the Edgar Allan Poe story, but very loosely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, uh, it's, it's set in Paris in the 1800s. Um, this uh, guy and his girlfriend visit a circus. They go to a science show attraction, and in there is a scientist named Dr. Miracle, and that's who Lugosi plays. He's with this gorilla. He has this gorilla. He names him Eric. He's part of the show. And he says that, you know, this is an ancestor of man, okay, that this is, you know, with the whole evolution thing. Uh, he wants to prove his theory. What he wants to do is he's been abducting women and injecting them with gorilla's blood in the hopes of finding the perfect human mate for Eric. Uh, he hasn't found one yet, but when this uh, guy and his girlfriend comes in, her name is Camille, she's played by Sidney Fox, uh, he decides she might be the one because Eric has responded to her in a way. Okay, now Lugosi in this movie, he has a look, okay, that um, – he wants to prove that, you know, man, uh, you know, descended from monkeys and, and he has th- this look about him. You know, he has a very, uh, Lugosi always had that stare. Yeah. That, totally. You know, he would have that stare and he has that in this movie. He has the menacing smile and he has a unibrow. Okay. That, that draws your attention every time, but he plays the mad scientist very well. Uh, and this also has cinematography by Carl Froon, who also did the camera work for Dracula. Uh, you get the shadowy, you know, the foggy streets of Paris when he's going out abducting these women. Um, censors actually had him cut out part of a death scene uh, where he stabs this this prostitute in the street. Um, you, you know, uh, it, they had to they had to cut it out. It was a little too much for them. But this was a, a good one. You know, this this shows Lugosi. I think it was a good role for him. And it shows him in something a little different than what you normally think of as a, as a Lugosi role. Uh, and he does a really good job with it. Okay. Um, the number four Lugosi movie that I would put there would be uh, another one from the 1930s, White Zombie. Okay. <laughs> nice. Yeah, this one is a classic. There's another one from 1932, as a matter of fact. I'm looking now. It's pretty amazing. I didn't realize that was from 32 also. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a big year for, uh, for Bella. Um, this was the very first zombie movie ever, uh, very first feature length zombie movie. True. True. Okay. And it is the old time zombies, you know, like the, uh, the voodoo. Yes. Uh, zombies. This is not the Romero living dead. This is the voodoo zombies. Um, and his name in this is every bit as strange. He plays, uh, murder Legrand. Uh, is Bella Lugosi's character's name. His first name is Murder. I mean, what does that tell you right there? I'm right. Lejean, Murder Legendre, I guess is what it is. Not Legrand, but Legendre. He's developed this potion that transforms people into zombies. There's a great scene at the beginning where this couple, they're going in to get married at this guy's estate. And they're going in by a, by a uh, horse and buggy, and the guy in the buggy says, zombies, you know, which might be the first, I guess is the first utterance of the word in, in, in a Hollywood production, obviously. And you really do get it. You see these people walking down the hill to, very slowly towards, you know, the, the horse and buggy. And it just has, and it's, it's dark out. And then Bella Lugosi's character shows up. He grabs her scarf. It's very creepy. 
And there's a scene later on where, you know, Murder has this factory where he's working these zombies. They're basically his slave labor. One of them, they're, you have four, like they're walking around this till. They're moving this huge uh, thing like the, the till. One of them falls in. You know he's dead. But they just keep on going. You know, and for a movie in the, for early 1930s, it's some pretty severe stuff. Um, but this is another one that that um, I think is is sort of an iconic role for Lugosi. Again, it's not a universal horror movie. It was uh, done for another. Uh, uh, he was lent out to be in this film. He was the big name star of this one. Um, but he makes it worth seeing. But other than that, it is just a very good movie. Also, I think Lugosi enhances this one. But on its own, I think White Zombie is is a classic, and that is is where. Um, uh, Rob Zombie got the name for his band. Mm-hmm. This movie, actually, from White Zombie. Yeah, cool. Okay, number three is the first pairing, uh, the first movie that Lugosi and Karloff appeared in together. Uh, this one's from 1934, and it's called The Black Cat. Named after the Poe story, but has nothing to do with the Poe story. Okay, um, the whole idea is that Bella Lugosi, it's, it's interesting because in this one, Lugosi is the heroic character and Karloff is the heavy. You would normally think it would be the reverse, but it's different in this one. Lugosi uh, plays uh, this doctor. He was a soldier. Uh, he was captured during World War I. He was a German soldier and he was captured, spent 15 years in prison. Um, Karloff plays um, this guy named Polzig. Who he's an architect, but he was also responsible for Lugosi's character ending up in prison. He was like the commanding officer of, of whatever of the group. Um, and while he was in prison, while Lugosi's character, Doctor uh, Vitus Werdegast, I that can't guess, I guess how you pronounce it. <laughs> it's a tough one. Um, yeah, while he was in prison, um, Polzig um, seduced his wife and the daughter. Both of them. Um, so Lugosi is going there looking for revenge. Anyway, there's a young couple there. They, uh, the, the carriage they're in uh, gets um, – there's an accident, and they all end up staying at Polzig's uh, mansion. On top of it, uh, Karloff, you know, Polzig, is a Satan worshiper. And there's a scene where you're walking through the corridors of his house. He has a lot of these women that he has seduced and so forth preserved behind glass. Whoa. That's okay. Awesome. For that time period, that's another pretty severe thing. <laughs> yeah, you know? seriously. To see these bodies sort of preserved behind glass. And you do see him conduct in Latin a satanic ritual in the movie. Uh, this is really um, – it's really an excellent film. I mean, I, this would be one of my all-time favorite universal horror movies, to be honest with you. Uh, Lugosi does a great job. Karloff does a great job. They play off each other really, really well. Um, and it's just overall a, a very interesting film. It's the first time the two of them appear together. I've always read that, that or I've heard that they weren't, didn't always get along. Mm-hmm. You know, that they didn't really like each other. But I don't think it was that. I think it was more just they weren't necessarily friends off the set. They both were responsible for helping to, to form the Actors Guild. Neat. Like they both took a very strong role in that. Huh. 
um, and worked together for that. So I, I don't know. I, I actually have biographies of both of them. I'm interested to, to sit down and actually you know, thumb through those things and, and sort of see what it, what it says in each book about the other. Um, but anyway, and this even, I read, I read a little bit about this in the, in the, in the Karloff book because Karloff at this point was resisting coming back doing horror movies. He had a very bad experience doing the mummy with the makeup because they put the makeup on him and they couldn't get it off. And it ended up, you know, really, um, marking his face up badly and it was a painful experience, and he wanted to give up horror movies altogether. Lugosi was, at the time they decided to do The Black Cat, was appearing on stage in New York. Um, they lured Lugosi back by giving him a salary of $1,000 a week for three weeks guaranteed. Mm, nice. <laughs> okay. They lured Karloff back by giving him 1500 a week for four weeks guaranteed. Oh, no. Here we okay. go. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And part, now, part of Bela Lugosi's problem is, is that he didn't fight for himself. You know, he, he should have <laughs> fought for himself. Karloff wasn't sure if he wanted to do it, so the studio sort of said, well, let's give him this deal. The two of them together, they have an equal number of scenes. They are billed the same, but yet the pay was that much different because mm. Karloff, I think jumped at the opportunity to come back in a film. I mean, not Karloff, Lugosi jumped at the opportunity. Karloff was sort of pushing it off saying, I'm not really interested. So him, they wanted back Lugosi, you know, it's, and it's really a shame because that's Lugosi's career. He was always underpaid on his movies and mm. he ended up not having too much money. I mean, you know, it's, it's almost the same thing with the three stooges. You know, you, what was it? Was it Paramount, I think, got so rich off those guys, yet always pretended like they weren't making any money and kept giving them like next to nothing to make these shorts for them. That's something else here or there. That You know, that's, that's another story altogether. But anyway, The Black Cat from 1934, definitely worth watching. The first time that Lugosi and Karloff got together, a really excellent film. Yeah, that one, I've... I've heard you, um, you know, plug that since like the Planet Macabre days, yeah. I think, and I've always wanted to see it, and um, I've never gotten around to it. Now, is that one hard to find? I don't believe so. No, um, I know this is on the set. Both Murder in the Rue, Murders in the Room Org, and the Black Cat are part of the. There's this old set called the Bella Lugosi Collection. As a matter of fact, it's it's like a, a one side of a disc has three movies. The the three movies on that side are. Murders in the Room Morgue, The Black Cat, and The Raven, which is another decent film. Didn't make my list, but it's another decent film that Karloff and Lugosi made together. Um, every now and again, I'll just pop that disc in and just play all three of those movies. Just let them play. Yeah. yeah almost and sometimes they could just be playing in the background. I just like all three of those movies are so good. Um, but The Black Cat is my, is my favorite of the three. Uh, and I don't, I don't know that it's available for streaming, but I don't think that Bela Lugosi collection is too expensive. And you get five movies in it, you know. And I think it's worth. I, for me personally, I think that makes it worth it. Okay. Okay. Um, now, number two might be a little bit of a surprise. Uh, Dracula. Oh. It's my well, number two. Yeah. Why would that be a surprise? <laughs> well, it's not a surprise because it's not the number one. Yeah, okay, I see what it's you're saying. It's the number two f film, because it's the one he's known for. Right, yeah. He's known for Dracula. Totally. And you can see why. He, he has a very commanding presence in that film. You know? When you look at the classic universal horror films, 
Dracula, as directed by Todd Browning, might be one of the more uh, one of the duller as far as direction. Yeah, you know, there's not a lot to it. Um, they have armadillos running around as rats. <laughs> uh, th- there's some just some things. Now that this the sets look great, but a lot of it is filmed in like the, from uh, you know it's it's interesting because on on the on the um, Universal set they have the Spanish version and the English version. What it was is back then they would actually sometimes film the movie in Spanish with Spanish actors. It's the same movie, different actors. They were filming Dracula during the day. Then at night, the Spanish crew would move in and film the Spanish version overnight. Mm. They'd wrap up in the morning and so forth and so on. The, you watch the, the, um, the Spanish version, which I have watched. The, the camera moves a lot more. Um, I didn't like the, the vampire. I didn't like the guy who played the, the vampire in it. But the camera moves. Yeah. It, it like goes up the stairs, as it, whereas Browning just keeps that static shot of, of of Dracula walking up, you know, walking up the stairs. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as far as, as far as, as directorial wise, the Spanish version, I think is the slightly better, but what really makes the movie is Bella Lugosi. He really does have a presence in that film and Dwight Fry. I don't want to forget him too. Mm-hmm. Dwight Fry. There's a scene where they, a ship pulls in and there's nobody on the ship, you know, like that classic scene from the, from the novel. And all you hear is hmm, 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 yeah. somebody laughing, and they pull open the hatch, looking down in the ship, and there he is, looking up, like holding onto the railings, with this like wild look in his eyes, white <laughs> fry, just going hmm, 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 it's it's really creepy. It is freaky. That is I mean, and and he does a really good job with it. He was another strength in the movie, but other than him, there's something about Bella Lugosi. As Dracula, that works. Whenever he's on screen, he does all the lines, you know, children of the night and I never drink wine and the whole nine yards. And he does them really well. And you see why he was sort of born to play the role. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Originally, it was going to be Lon Chaney, but Lon Chaney passed away before they were able to make the movie. Like Lon Chaney Sr. passed away. So Lugosi was like a second choice, but he made the role his. It's neat that you said that uh, Lugosi was born to play the role because when I did, um, I, I wrote up that little piece of on Zombie7.com, mm-hmm. Ron Martin said about the Mount Rushmore of horror, Bella Lugosi was the actor that I chose as one of the four heads there. And I put that, um, I wrote here that Dracula is the same man, the Bella Lugosi, who was born in what is now Romania, the same country of origin as Bram Stoker's Dracula character. And and the other thing that was cool about him to me, Dr. Shock, since we're talking mm-hmm. about him, is in 1956 when he was uh, laid to rest in his final coffin, he was buried wearing his Dracula cape. That's right. That's uh, awesome. Yep. I know. Yep, they, they're buried him wearing the cape. <laughs> yeah, so like if anybody ever was like, you know, accidentally dug him up <laughs> like that yeah. would be freaky to find him like that in there it would be pretty <laughs> freaky yeah to see him with that cape on wow yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay well that brings me to my number one movie and i picked this as number one because i think it is bella lugosi's best performance the best performance he ever delivered and it is 1939's son of frankenstein okay mm. usually when you hear about the frankenstein series you know the early 
series, you hear about Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. Right. In my book, Son of Frankenstein is every bit as strong. It re- they really should talk about the trilogy. I just watched, you know, I watched that probably about six months ago. That's funny that you're bringing this up. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I, I mean, what did you think of it? Yeah, you know, I was surprised because it was actually the first time that I had seen it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I was like, um, I don't know, but I, I thought it was going to be like a really cheap, weak knockoff. Like, uh, you know, I thought it was just going to... Just like another like, one in the series. Like, okay, yeah. let's just make another Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, because it's called Son of Frankenstein. You know, right. it's like Son of King Kong or whatever. Right, right. You know, Son that's the Kong, association. Yeah. But yeah, it's a it's actually a pretty strong entry. It is, and 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 Bela Lugosi is a big reason why he plays Igor, and he has a broken neck, and you see that thing on him through the whole movie. You know, they tried to hang him, it didn't take, so they let him go, and he's been living in the castle. You know, the the whole story is um, Frankenstein's son comes back to the castle with his family from America, um, because they're going to move in there. Bella's been living there for a while, with watching over the monster. Okay, Bella Lugosi, he does not play a pleasant character in this, and he plays sort of like a like a, a like a, a just a peasant and just that creepy with that neck broken, and he does such a good job. This is so far away from the Dracula character, and I think that he really he really nails uh his performance in this one. He is just perfect as Igor. And this, and what's really interesting about this is, you know, Young Frankenstein, Mel Brooks is Young Frankenstein. He took more from this movie, I think, than he did either of the other two. I would agree with that, actually. Yeah. You no, know, because you even have the detective who lost an arm, right? right. You know, who dresses just like Kenneth Mars did in in Young Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is a really good movie. Uh, it's not Karloff's strongest appearance as the monster. Uh, he goes back to being mute. He hated the fact that the character talked in Bride of Frankenstein. Mm. So when they tried to get him back for another movie, he says, if I come back, I'm not talking. Mm-hmm. So they don't really explain. I don't, I don't believe they explained why he stopped talking. I think they did try to explain it, why he wasn't talking. Uh, but all of a sudden, the monster couldn't talk again. And he's wearing sort of like this fur coat type of thing. Um, but, you know, Lionel Atwell plays that... Uh, plays that commander that plays the 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 police uh captain or whatever you want to call him from the from the village and he has that great line because he he lost his arm to the monster as yeah. a child the monster you know he has you know you don't soon forget an arm torn out by the roots oh yeah that's that's really chilling yeah mm-hmm. uh, and so as a child that's how he lost his arm um so he's strong in this movie uh, even though he he despised horror films, I think um, Basil Rathbone, who plays the son, does a decent job. Perhaps a little over the top. A little bit, <laughs> and and you know, story wise, I don't I don't love um, how quickly his character arc changes from yes, that's from, true. From where he begins in the film to where he ends up, it's like wow, that was a pretty fast conversion <laughs> like to be in, mm-hmm. to be in like your dad, but anyway. right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, now did you say already like, um, cause I ended up watching this, my, my friend, I borrowed my friend's, um, Frankenstein, the legacy collection. Oh, did, nice. Do yeah. you, do you have that? Is that, is that where I you, do? 
I, I, lo- I love that. And I need to get that, actually, because I think it's just tremendous. That's a good one. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. The one for Dracula, it has Dracula's daughter, son of Dracula on it. If I were to recommend, if you, if you were, if, if I were to recommend like the best ones to get, the two that I would recommend would be the Frankenstein mm-hmm. and the mummy, actually. Oh, nice. Okay. Because the mummy films, uh, right after the 32 mummy, they go to the mummy's hand, which in a way is a remake of the first one because it starts the series over again. Neat. You know, it's a different mummy and everything. And then that's the one that carries through to all the other series. You know, the first mummy is a standalone. They do put a couple scenes with Karloff in it just, you know, uh, they just picked them up and threw them into the film, into the mummy's hand. But the mummy's hand follows like a different storyline, a different group of characters, a different mummy. And where it carries from that point forward is from the one in the mummy's hand, not from the original movie. Yeah. So they were remaking movies even back then. Right. right. You know, because that mummy's hand is basically a remake of the mummy. Uh, but anyway, yeah, Son of Frankenstein would be at the number one. I always recommend this to people. I really think... I'm not going to say it's as good as Frankenstein or or Bride of Frankenstein, but it definitely deserves to be up there with those three. I always, when people always talk about the Frankenstein series, for me, it's a trilogy because this one is really that good. Yeah, it's worthy. I mean, I was shocked. I couldn't believe, like, seriously, I could not believe how, you know, decent it ended up being. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of them, from that point forward, in the next one, Lon Chaney Jr. plays the monster. I, was, I want to say it's Ghost of Frankenstein. Not as impressed with that. You did have Bela Lugosi back as Igor, but I'm not as impressed with that. And they end up putting his brain into the monster. Mm. So then when the fifth movie came around, the fifth movie in the Frankenstein series is the second movie in the Wolfman series. Oh, It's Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Yeah. Okay? The first half of that film is gold it is so good because it's the wolfman and it is so strong the second half where he goes and he meets frankenstein's monster it falls apart and part of the reason why is for poor bella lugosi when they were making the movie they made it out that the monster is blind yeah and and they did give him some dialogue which they removed and he talked like bella lugosi they removed it when test audiences laughed because Bela Lugosi's voice coming out of the monster. Mm-hmm. But it made sense from the previous film because it was Igor's brain put into the monster. Right, right. But they laughed. They removed all the dialogue. He walks around with his arms outstretched. Oh. You know how you get that famous shot of the arms outstretched of the monster? Oh, yeah. Well, it doesn't work. It doesn't look good. And, and it made people – that made people laugh too. But they cut out the part of that the monster was blind to explain that's why he's doing that. Oh, so poor Bella just looks like he's giving a poor, a very bad performance as the monster. That's awful. <laughs> yeah, it's really – they just changed it around a lot. So the second half of that movie doesn't work, but the first half of Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman is really, really good. I mean as a follow-up to the Wolfman, it's really strong. Okay. So Dr. Shock's list of five Bella Lugosi movies that are worth checking out if you like old-time horror if, it's really if you want to get acquainted with Bela Lugosi, you know, okay. and to see what he's and to see what he meant to the horror genre back then. Okay, you know, it's it's. You want me to go through it again, or yeah, just list them sure. off real yeah. fast. Uh, mur- murder in the Murder in the Room Morgue. Mm-hmm. Um, White Zombie. Mm-hmm. 
The Black Cat from yes. 1934. There's a lot of movies called The Black Cat. This is the one from 1934. And the first two were, um, that I mentioned were from 1932. Uh, the fourth one is Dracula, of course, 1931. And then the fifth one is uh, Son of Frankenstein, 1939. All from the 30s, which is interesting. And the only one that was uh, after the code was enforced is Son of Frankenstein. Cool. All the other ones are pre-code. You've got a lot of either old school or obscure coverage on this particular episode tonight. This is like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I was, really... I was trying, I was trying to do that. I was trying to sort of go off the beaten path with some of these things. Well, I like it. I like it when you do that because I'll tell you why. I try to, and I'm gonna even try to get better at this for the listeners. I'm trying to cover like as new as possible horror, which I don't always mm-hmm. do, but um. You know, and if so, if I'm doing that and then you're doing some obscure or, you know, really old school stuff, I think it'll be some pretty, a pretty broad spectrum of coverage. Yeah, oh, cool. So I think yeah, I agree. I, I, I like it. We can keep it, uh, sort of keep it interesting for everyone. Yeah, well, that's the hope. So, absolutely. <laughs> speaking of keeping it interesting, this next little portion, I mean, I was sad not to have Wolfman Josh on here tonight. I hope he got to his destination wherever he was flying and you know what we've been podcasting for so long right now he's probably there by now so i would think he's probably he's probably in bed asleep <laughs> yeah exactly where he's going but he sent us this email um or this text or something this week about something that's very interesting and um i'll get to that in a second i'm going to preface it here so I saw this Time Magazine article that I ended up saving to go over on this podcast, and it actually really segues well into um, Wolfman Josh's little tidbit that he sent us. So in Time Magazine, in the uh, October 28th, 2013 edition, there was an article by Lily Rothman, and it was titled Monsters, Inc. Inside the Weird World of Professional Haunting. You know, so it was a little Halloween story, but uh, I'll tell you, there's some... Interesting things in here that that isn't, you know, most of this is not movie related, but I will say I think the horror fans out there will find this somewhat interesting. I highlighted a couple things. It says the National Retail Federation, whatever that is, has found that Halloween spending is down in 2013 with about 12 million fewer Americans planning to celebrate this year than last. And Yahoo data shows that fewer searches uh, that they're doing fewer searches for haunted houses Hmm. so that's kind of sad and and part of the reason there were lots of theories um, posed on this but one one reason is that they just thought that um, people are just getting harder to frighten okay and so that's part of what this article in time magazine is about is about how we've become desensitized through our our cinema and through video games and through all the violence that's depicted and they say that, um, you know, we have a culture of normalized violence often shown in realistic CGI, and that may be to blame. And it says that um, film trends lead to haunting trends. And so in 2013, it said, given the current zombie zeitgeist, blood and guts are on moviegoers' menus. So a lot of the haunted houses would have like zombie type themed stuff. Oh, wow. Now, here's something that I did not know, but it says that American trick-or-treating traditions were actually commercialized after World War II in the suburbs. So that's kind of where that came from. But this article, the Halloween 
uh, fanatics out there will be happy to hear that this article cites John Carpenter's Halloween 1978 as um, kind of the film that shows movement toward a holiday that's actually about scaring people and not just about getting candy. So that's where it kind of got serious. Now, um, they've been trying to ramp things up for this kind of stuff. And one of the um, organizers proposed that they do a haunted, get this doc, this is, this is for you. I think they do a haunted house tour where the visitors would enter naked to make them feel more vulnerable. And so, but the, but that was kind of shot down by the local. Uh, me- yeah, I I would think that could be a mess. <laughs> and really, I mean, how many people honestly would go do that? I mean, I could see a lot of guys doing that, but I not many see girls. Some people doing it on a bet, You're right. on a dare. There's no way in hell I couldn't see. Well, I guess there's some girls that were doing it on a dare too. Um, yeah. There's nobody I know. We would do it, and myself included. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, Wolfman. That happened. Wolfman Josh would do that. I think. Yeah. Oh, maybe. <laughs> Just, I don't know. I, I wouldn't think so. No. <laughs> but it says no. that um, you know, objections from the local municipalities there persuaded them to dial it back to an underwear tour, so people mm-hmm. would wear their underwear through there. But um, this the same guy. His name is Steve Kopelman. He's a a haunt producer. He tried a new idea in his Phoenix location, and it says that visitors were tracked with radio frequency identification tags. And if they granted access to their Facebook pages, Dr. Shock, then they would use photos of their friends that would appear on the walls of the haunted house as they made their way through the house. So, I mean, that's really up in the ante there. I have to, I have to, yeah, it's interesting you say that. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we Go had a haunted it. house here in Pottstown, which is right up the road here, which is where they film part of uh, Stakeland, just mm. for people to give them sort of a point of reference here. Yeah. Um, but they had one that they would put together. This pizza shop would do it. And they would always build it behind the pizza shop. They would actually you know, put up the walls and everything. It's not there normally. They would build this, this haunted house. And it was a special that if you buy a pizza, you get a d- discount on the ticket to go through the haunted house. And it was very well put together. It would, it would be very creepy. I mean, you'd be walking through a dark room and all of a sudden a girl, ghost makeup, throat slash comes up. What have you done with my baby? And, I, you know, I'm walking through and... <laughs> I'm not really getting, no, it's like sort of like, okay, my kids are getting freaked out and everything. But when that happened and she's like in my face screaming, I'm like, you know, I, it really sort of got under my skin. So this thing was very effective. But one thing they would do is they would have people lurking behind the walls. And when one person would call out to another person, they would start saying that person's name through the rest of the your time through there. Oh, wow. So yeah, if someone smart. called out to me and said, Dave, come here, they'd be behind the wall, Dave, Dave, you know, and doing things like that. <laughs> come here, Dave, and banging on the wall next to you and things like that. That's brilliant. That's really well, so good. You mentioned that. Yeah, I thought, and that it, 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 it worked. That's why I, I always <laughs> made sure, you know, it got to the point, I was always the one right out in front. You know, and as you go through the curtain and you know something's going to happen, it starts to get a little old. I, I start to hang back a little bit. Yes, yeah, I'm like, I'm tired of being the I'm tired of being the one getting the jump scare. <laughs> while everyone else, while everyone else just sort of gets the dull scare going in after the fact. But <laughs> that's funny. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. If you wanted to, no, that was perfect. Back to that that was absolutely perfect. And so, 
Um, what Josh sent us was um, this link to a website. It's it's for Great Horror Campout, okay? And that's the address, greathorrorcampout.com. And by the way, we don't get any advertising kickbacks for mentioning this on here. I just thought it might be of interest to the listeners. Yeah. But there's something called the Great Horror Campout, and they have a choose-your-own-adventure overnight interactive Ooh. camping experience. Um, so you know there's going to be Friday the 13th stuff there, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so so they have... um. They have a less extreme experience, which which includes like horror movies, roasting marshmallows, campfires, sing-alongs, ghost storytelling, and stuff like that. So it's it's more laid back, and they say that the monsters won't join you inside your tent on that one. So <laughs> so that's more like laid back. And then they have a very extreme horror experience, and they have four sections. Um, that are like basically fair game if you pitch your tent there and it's fair game all night long. And, and they even have something called like a hell hunt where you compete for the title of hell master. And it, you know, as you read about it, it sounds a little bit like a horror survivor. So Josh probably would be into that actually. Yeah. And um, what, what I thought was funny is they actually have a safe phrase for people who kind of freak out and can't take it. Um, and I guess if you shout the phrase, I want my mommy. <laughs> then the monsters <laughs> will back off from you. But this is a 12-hour thing. It lasts from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. And it's only for adults 18 or older. And they categorize this as a high-scare, high-startle content experience. And there are no refunds. <laughs> wow. So would you do something like that, Dr. Shock? i tell you what. we. I would, I probably, I don't know. I would be a tough one. I mean, we have one here in Pennsylvania, Eastern State Penitentiary, which is supposedly one of the most haunted places. It's an ex, it's an old prison mm-hmm. um, from like years and years ago, where they have Halloween tours, and the tour is they give you a flashlight and you walk through the place at night. Nice, you know, with no lights on or anything. Uh, that, from what I understand, and and that's one of, the, and I don't have the guts to do that. See, I, there was um in Moundsville, West Virginia. There's a very famous penitentiary there. That they do that. And and I went through that with my girlfriend at the time. And it was the same kind of thing. You have like flashlights. It's dark. Uh-huh. Very scary in there. And yeah, I don't know what it is about old prisons. They always seem to be haunted. They as seem they say. to be. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because I, I worked with a woman who actually was part of a, um, a society that would go around. They were like ghost hunters. And when they would get a report that an area is haunted – they would go and they would try to document it. And I don't, I don't know if it was a prison. I think it might have been, but there was one where they actually went to. And what it was is the guy, they have the tape rolling. And he would just sit there going, uh, twinkle, twinkle, little star. And then a pause and he'd go, twinkle, twinkle. And he just did that for like 10 minutes. And when they played back the tape, they heard an answer. Oh, neat. <laughs> you know, probably the worst one they had was uh, somebody, um, uh, they found a guy, uh, not, not to go too much into the, the um, a guy who owned this house, he owned a business, and this young kid flew in from out of state. He wanted to move into the area, and he wanted to work for this guy. Well, this guy uh, had an attraction to this young kid, made a pass at him. The kid turned him down, so he ended up killing the kid in his basement accidentally and didn't know what to do. He called a friend over. They wrapped him up in a rug. They kept him down there for a few months before they could get rid of the body. 
um, you know, that he put the cops off the trail and everything. And then he eventually was, was caught. Another family moved in there a few years later, and the kid's spirit was still in the basement. They would hear things being thrown around down there. Oh, wow. You know, like really angrily. Yeah. Like that's... a very angry spirit down there. <laughs> that's crazy. Um, you know, things like that. And she would tell me these stories. And as soon as she would tell me them, I'd have to go out. It was like I'd be done at 10 o'clock at night. Then I'd have to jump in my car, drive through a wooded area to get home. You know, <laughs> it's like, oh, great. Oh, I've got one for you. I've got a story for you to close off this podcast tonight that you're going to like. <laughs> oh, great. I can't. Because I'm, I'm ready for bed here. I know. I can't wait. But um, so. It, well, the last thing I was going to tell you about that, um, the prison thing for me is at the very end, there was like a big muscular guy that run that comes out in a hockey mask and he turns on a chainsaw and chases oh, okay. you, you know, like Jason Voorhees. And right. I, seriously, you know, when you watch Friday the 13th movies, you're like, yeah, that'd be scary. But you don't realize just how scary it is to see a big guy in a hockey mask and, yes. and a chainsaw running out of you. It is Freaking scary. And if you and if you watch the movies, you know he's eventually going to catch you. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going does. to you don't you don't get away from Jason Voorhees. Nope. Nope. <laughs> You're doomed. <laughs> so, so okay, so as we start wrapping up here, um we got I I wanna recognize our new iTunes review that we got from KZ Justin. And his iTunes review leads into my last creepy story of the night. But um the, his review was titled Perfect Horror Podcasting and he gave us five stars and he says these are folks who care about horror and the podcast reflects that. Great coverage, interesting discussions and occasionally they talk about things that will give you chills. They cover a large spectrum of horror and do so in an entertaining fashion. Stop reading and download this. So we, nice. we thank KZ Justin. That is so awesome. That um, is great. And because he said that about the chills, I got this great little story. But um, real quick, I also wanted to thank, um, because we just, I mean, we're already so many hours into this, and it's like, it's getting really late for you, Doc, but... Yeah, we're, 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 we're approaching, it's almost midnight for, well, is it midnight for you? It's almost one o'clock for me. Oh, so. okay, yeah, you're only a couple hours behind, because I'm, I'm getting close to three. Yeah, so we're going to have to wrap it up, but um, I do want to thank everybody... <clears throat> on episode 17, I see here that we have 84 comments yes. thus far, <laughs> and that is just absolutely tremendous. So seriously, guys and gals, we thank you very much, and um, to thank you, I'm going to end with this little story. In 2008, Dr. Shock, this is a true story. There was um, a Japanese man that was living by himself, and he always kind of felt watched in his own home, like he wasn't really alone. And then he started noticing like food disappearing and things being displaced in his house. So what he did was he set up these cameras and started filming the house, you know, like paranormal activity style. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, what he discovered from the footage is that there was a homeless woman who had been living in the top of his closet for a oh. year. And she would sneak out of there and steal food and take showers and stuff. And and what's really creepy about this is when he watched the tape back when he was watching it, she was actually only a few feet away in that Ooh. in that very closet from where he was watching. Now, wow. now I first learned about this. I got to give credit where credit's due from Matthew Santoro. He has a YouTube channel that's pretty awesome. Funny Canadian guy. 
And this video is titled 10 Creepy Ur Urban Legends That Turned Out to Be True. So guys, check that out. I'll uh, link it in the show notes. But um, I did some additional research to make sure that this was not, in fact, an urban legend. And I found that it was on NBCNews.com and uh, various other news sources. And it, and it reads, a homeless woman in Japan managed to sneak into a man's house and lived undetected in his closet for a year and was only arrested after he became suspicious when food mysteriously began disappearing. Police found the 58-year-old woman on Thursday hiding in the top compartment of the man's closet and they arrested her for trespassing, the policeman said. And the resident of the home installed security cameras like we talked about and and that's how he ended up capturing her. Wow. And the quote says here from the people who found her, it says, the cop says, we searched the house, checking everywhere someone could possibly hide. When we slid open the shelf closet, there she was, nervously curled up on her side. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. <laughs> Brother, that's freaky. Oh, right? that is freaky. That's... That is freaky to think of someone can get away with that. I know. Well, I have an attic, and every once in a while I'll hear things, and I'm like, there better not be somebody living up in that. One one sick puppy always tells me that he's living in my attic or he's outside, like watching it. Like it's just hilarious. But especially when you think of a movie like Black Christmas, especially that, because of that movie. Yes, absolutely. Anyways, well, well I had I had a real freaky dream recently too, and it's one of those things where I'm wondering. <laughs> I'm actually thinking to myself if it was a dream, but I think it was a dream where I was walking through a house that was not mine. Mm -hmm. um, nobody could see me. I was walking through this house and I was trying to get people's attention, but I was looking around at different things and I was wondering why I was there. And I saw this sort of demonic face looking at me from another room. Mm -hmm. And the two of us had sort of a conversation. <laughs> and the conversation was, you know, along the lines of neither one of us should be here. <laughs> so when I woke up, man, I was like, what the hell? Yikes. You know, I'd never had a dream like that before. Uh, that was just recently. That was like about uh, maybe a month ago. And I was putting it to like, obviously, all the horror movies I've been watching. <laughs> what I think has a lot to do with it. You know, that story makes me mad at all the people who are listening to this podcast. And it's like 12 noon, broad yeah, daylight. Exactly. And they're like, what are these guys acting all like? But see, we're we're recording this in the middle of the night. And we are getting right off of here and going into our dark bedrooms and laying down. <laughs> yes, our respective dark bedrooms. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> so, yes, yes. anyways, I think that just about wraps up episode 18 of Horror Movie Podcast, and we do thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 19, when we'll be doing our next themed episode, and it's my turn th this time, <clears throat> and I'm going to be covering one of my all-time favorite story types with my buddies here, and that's the siege narrative. So for nice. those who aren't familiar with it, the siege narrative is typically when you have characters who are holed up like inside somewhere with the victims on the inside and the monsters trying to get them from the outside. And we'll be discussing four hand-selected films to help us explore the siege narrative. So subscribe to Horror Movie Podcast free in iTunes to be sure that you don't miss episode 19. 
And I'm going to turn over to Dr. Shock here and see if you have any final plugs before we wrap up. Nah, just my normal. Uh, you know, check out DVDinfatuation.com. Uh, still going over there. Yeah, and, um, you know, check me out on uh, landofthecreeps.com. It's another, pod, another horror podcast I do. And um, I'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. And I want to encourage people to check out my guest appearance on the Resurrection of Zombie 7 podcast with Ron Martin and Little Miss Horror Nerd. They're beginning to review the entire Saw franchise. And I had Ooh, the honor. Nice. Yeah. And I got the honor of reviewing the first Saw film with them from 2004. And so. Which is the, which in my opinion is the best. Agreed. And it's, it's uh, a very. It's a very, uh, people really look at it and that gets lumped into the torture porn and I don't think it belongs there. Oh, 100% agree. Absolutely. So yeah, people should check that out because um, I don't know if, you know, I'm sure listeners are familiar, but like Ron goes like step by step, scene by scene, very analytical. So this is um, episode 97 and you can find it at zombie7.com. Wow, they're up to 97. That's awesome. Yeah, they're going to be hitting episode 100 just in a couple weeks so that is awesome congratulations to those guys definitely and listeners out there um you can also if you like all types of movies check us out over at movie podcast weekly um we review all new movies that are out in theaters and stuff just tons of stuff and josh and i fight on that podcast like cats and dogs worse than we fight (laughs) over here so and that's saying something. <laughs> yeah, it really is. So, so we love to get your comments. Um, you can get involved in the horror movie podcast community, as you can see on our website. That we have a really active community of friends that just love horror and they discuss it together. You can also email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail dot com and leave a voicemail at eight zero one three eight two eight seven eight nine. And um, like we said before, check us out on iTunes or free to subscribe and I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for our theme song and you can find his music at frederickingram.com and all that will be linked in the show notes and as for our buddy Wolfman Josh he does movie streamcast and you can find him on Twitter at Icarus Arts so check that out well that's it for episode 18 thank you for listening and join us again in two weeks for Horror Movie Podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies. La la mother